Dave Johnson here with some important announcements for our hardworking staff. Firstly, I have a cold, so if I'm lacking in my usual gravitas and baritone, that's why. Don't write in. Now for the real news. As you know, we've recently changed our name from Aperture Science Inc. to Z, because I was tired of having to write out our whole business name. Unfortunately, this time-saving measure is being sabotaged by a Japanese animation company that claims to have the trademark for the letter Z, which doesn't make sense to me because they don't even use our alphabet over there. Frankly, I think it's selfish. Regardless, a lawsuit sounds like having to write a lot of letters, and I don't have time for that. So until we find a cooler letter, we will continue to call ourselves Aperture Science. Now, regarding the giant flashing Z we installed on the roof last week, the city is forcing us to take it down because allegedly it is dangerous and causing seizures. Legally, I have to apologize for that, but personally, I have no regrets. Some people induce seizures on their wives to fix up the depression, so why can't the boys have a little bit of fun? Unfortunately, some people, namely the mayor, failed to see our vision. He did see our sign, though, and it gave him a seizure. Now he's suing me because when he told me to take it down, I called him a pedophile. Not to worry, though. This is one lawsuit I'm confident will win. You see, pedophile is a term of endearment where I'm from. Some of my best friends are pedophiles. Anyway, some of you may have heard some rumors about Aperture Science running out of money. And if you haven't heard those rumors, let me be the first to tell you. Aperture Science has run out of money. But rest assured, we are handling it. In addition to our endeavors in science, technology, engineering, and shower curtains, Aperture is venturing into banking. We figure why be the victims of predatory loans when we can be the ones issuing them. All we need is to get a few people to let us hold on to their hard-earned cash and lie to their face when we say we're going to keep it safe and not loan it to anybody else. How hard can it be to give a schmuck someone else's money, call it ours, and tell them they owe us double? It's the perfect business model. Now, effective immediately, all paychecks for active and inactive Aperture Science employees will be automatically deposited into the Aperture Banking System, where we assure you, your funds will be 100% completely safe. Also, as an effort to boost morale, effective immediately, we will now exclusively refer to money as bacon. Isn't that fun? Furthermore, we are going to make some substantial cuts to the bacon, specifically your bacon. Please reach out to your supervisor to find out what the cut of your bacon will look like. Finally, some tragic news. As many of you know, we have been experimenting with the potential of increasing cognitive brain function by implanting computer chips in the brains of monkeys. We are sad to report that 199 out of the 200 monkeys we experimented on have died. And the monkey that didn't die wishes it did. Now, due to bacon cuts, we cannot afford a candlelight vigil. So instead, let us now observe a moment of silence for our fallen simians. Uh, now's not a good time. I'm doing push-ups. Really? Well, that's not good. Folks, I just received some tragic news about that last monkey. Hello, and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. I have a wonderful guest with me today. She is a filmmaker and video essayist. It's Adequate Emily. Emily, how are you today? I'm doing okay. I am doing pretty okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I do wonder if by the time this comes out, if I'll have my Twitter account back or not. 
Yeah, I was going. I had a bunch of notes about, uh, you know, saying fuck Twitter for uh, suspending us. But as of the time of recording, I do have my uh, Twitter account back and I try to give you advice on that. See if that helps. So hopefully we both have our accounts back. I do think it's funny that we started playing this podcast right around the same time we both got suspended. <laughs> yeah, it was like, oh, by the way, while we're complaining, do you want to be on my show? <laughs> I think that's how that conversation happened. Yeah, perfect time, I guess. You know, uh, when life gives you the shittiest lemons in the world, why not make, you know, a decent lemonade out of it? So hopefully, uh, something, something make lemon grenades. Oh Reddit. yeah. Shit. That is the series that does that. Fuck. All right. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, immediately after saying Reddit, when I was going to be making fun of the portal fandom, my brain went Reddit, Fortnite. I don't know why <laughs> Fortnite is the first thing that comes to mind after Reddit for me. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I got into Portal was because I remember seeing it popular online. Yeah, it's like one of the earliest versions of like modern online fandom that I remember in terms of like people making like animations from like voice lines from the characters, like having like OCs in that world, all that kind of stuff. The stuff that would just become the house style for basically every fandom on Tumblr. I saw first personally through Portal. I got into these games not too much later. I... I'm realizing now that it was 10 years ago now uh, when I was 14 because I was starting to get into watching gaming content and stuff like that. And I didn't actually own that many games anymore. I had played them as a kid, but I never really played much of the good stuff. And now I'm starting to learn about it. But of course, this is 2013. All of the stuff people are recommending is M rated. And I am in a household where my mom still asked me if I was playing killing people games. <laughs> so. Portal was a perfect in between because it had that respect and that dark, dramatic edge to it. Mm. But it still was something that uh, was easier for me to get into as a 14 year old. And it started my journey with video games where I still feel like I am like any any person getting into any medium that's been around for decades. I am catching up constantly. Yeah, that's what it kind of is like for I mean, me as like somebody who. Uh, I've talked about this like through the realm of film before, like every time you feel like you have like every time you watch one movie, it's just like, here's five more movies you can watch that have like inspired this in some way or as like a reaction to this movie. And like it just be it becomes more and more and more. And the more you watch, the more you play things like the more you realize you haven't played anything. It's like it's exciting, but it is also overwhelming. I, I think it's funny because, yeah, I constantly have to remark on the fact that I haven't seen like very famous films that everyone loves, but I've seen obscure shit just because it caught my eye once because there's just entirely too much to keep up with it. When people look at me they're like, how have you not seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy? I'm like, because they're all three hours long and I want to watch them all in like one sitting and fucking rarely am I up for nine hours of movies. <laughs> <laughs> No, I get it. Like the pandemic was like the perfect time for me to watch like a bunch of longer movies because like what else was I fucking doing, uh, especially during the early lockdown months? The problem for me during the pandemic was like I I got depressed partway through it and I stopped doing a lot of my interests. The funny thing is during that time is when I got super into Persona because that was I should clarify because I realized we were going from movie talk. Uh, the game Persona 5, not the movie. I do love the movie as well, but it was the perfect quarantine game in a way. Like, I can't talk to anybody. I can't have anything, but I could have this virtual friendship going on in a way. Yeah, they're very easy to maintain. 
but that's also the problem I haven't caught up yet, because I keep playing a hundred hour long fucking JRPGs. Mm. And then I'm like, man, why haven't I played all of Devil May Cry? Maybe it's because I keep playing Persona games that are 60 to 100 hours long. Yeah, or in the movie sense, like, oh, I'm sorry I didn't sit down and watch this three-hour film. I was too busy playing 125 hours of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. So, yeah, that's why I couldn't get to that. Right. (laughs) Or in my case, I'm sorry that I haven't caught up on certain movie discourses. I spent the last week watching pretty much all of Nolan's filmography to write an Oppenheimer review. Oh, yeah. Uh, how was uh, Oppenheimer to you, by the way? Like, I thought it was pretty great. I don't think it's his best. I think some people call it his masterpiece. I don't know. I think he's done. Christopher Nolan has done better movies, but it is very interesting. Of the Barbenheimer movies, I did prefer Barbie slightly. I drove into Boston to go see Oppenheimer on 70 millimeter print because uh, I wanted to do that at least once. And it was very beautiful to see it that way. And I... It It is a very impressive, complex, interesting movie. I can see why it is not releasing in Japan at all. I get why, as much as I think it's important to tell the stories of villains sometimes, when you tell, when you make a movie about a bunch of people gleefully committing a war crime, the people who are victim of that war crime may not need to see it. Yeah. And there's no expectation, at least on my end, for anybody to feel like they need to see a movie. I think ultimately your relationship with media is like your relationship with it more than like putting this on as many people as possible. So if somebody has those kinds of grievances against the movie like Oppenheimer, which is very much about like one of the most horrific traumas ever inflicted on human beings, I totally get if you don't want to see it. For me, I love this movie. I do think it is one of Nolan's very best. I think it's like I think I still ultimately prefer The Prestige. But if I, I'm... yeah, I'd put the prestige. I'd say Inception also up there. I will always love The Dark Knight because it's the movie that got me to love movies. Like when I was 15, it's the one that made me realize like, oh, no, like I like subtext. I like drama. I've never really gotten to engage with it like this before. So I will always think that that one's one of his best. And for me, Memento is just a masterpiece. I, I think Memento is a masterpiece. But I mean, that's the thing. Like, I'm saying all these movies I think are better. I still think it's like a high eight out of 10. Like, I still love it. Like, it's just in the same way that I'd say Barbie is like the weakest Greta Gerwig film. It's still one of the best movies of the year. It's just that Lady Bird and Little Women were already that good. (laughs) Like, it's not an insult. It's a it's a compliment to the director. Yeah, like these are not on people in like their slump era. These are people still refining and evolving a style and like doing new things with it for Nolan in particular for me it did it did feel cumulative in terms of like the themes that he tries to do and the refinements of like his weird little like obsession with like picking things apart like in terms of uh the psychology of Oppenheimer as well as like bomb uh so we've talked about movies a little bit here uh, obviously like that's what you mainly talk about online but this is a video game podcast yeah. and we do have to check your gaming credentials here you talked about your relationship with gaming a little bit here yeah let's check your gaming credentials uh, what was your gaming history like? Who or what got you into it? What was your relationship with it like? What is adequate Emily's portrait of a gamer? I, I mentioned earlier that like Portal was kind of the first step for me. But in a way, like I was playing games a lot as a kid. They weren't good games. I feel like I, I can't relate to kids who like played all the classics as a kid. 
because I had no idea what I was doing and was renting over the hedge the video game twice from Blockbuster. But <laughs> that was the thing. I remember when I was four or five, my dad brought home PS2 because he wanted to play Tiger Woods on it. And I it just happened to be my thing that I got into around the same time I got my Game Boy Advance and got super into Pokemon. And so Pokemon was like the first like game game that like you could really consider like classic gaming that you could really put in there because when it came to me playing on my PS2, it was mostly sports games or SpongeBob SquarePants games. Although I do maintain the movie game is very good if you're into the bow for Bikini Bottom. It's the same developer. I agree. Uh, <laughs> uh, like a lot of people around 2007, me and my sister really wanted a Wii and we also wanted a DS. We got those both at the same time. And the Wii was probably the first time I actually like paid attention to things because it was easier to because it was Mario. I heard about Super Mario Galaxy because there were ads for it on the TV. Mm-hmm. They played it during Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. I knew about it, so I got to play a lot more classic games and I started to discover a lot of stuff I really liked about it. And then eventually, over time, you know, the Wii faded for a bit, and around when I turned 13, I got cynical, and I stopped playing games as much, and I got my PS3, and I I still play games, but it wasn't a lot of, like, specialty titles. And then, yeah, I got back into gaming through... First, it was through discovering Minecraft, and while I didn't own a copy because I didn't have the money to pay for it, I, I, when it came to Portal, I literally waited until the set of the two games was $5 on Steam. So, <laughs> you know, I'm a middle schooler. I don't have money on me, but I watched other people play it online. And that led me to gaming channels where they talked about more than just that, where they talk about a bunch of games. And I learned about GTA 5 coming out at that time. A lot of other big games like Far Cry 3 that people were talking about. And I started to get more interested in stuff stuff like that. And I remember the next year, because I still had my PS3, and because 2014 was not exactly... Like most first years of new consoles, there there wasn't exactly... I wasn't missing too much on the new games front for the new consoles anyway. I decided to go back and finally play uh, a few of the easier-to-convince-my-mom-to-buy-me games, like uh, Uncharted and Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, like, I hit 16 the next year, and I just, like, am with my dad, and I walk up and grab Grand Theft Auto V to see his reaction, and it has no reaction. And I go, okay, I can get whatever I want now. No one's going to care. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's always the, the line, is Grand Theft Auto is the big boogeyman for parents, so if you get past that one, you're good. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've I have been in like a GameStop when people are having like the conversation with the the cashier and the parent is hearing what the cashier is saying about the contents of like a Grand Theft Auto game while like the eleven year old is like looking at the GameStop employee like, dude, why are you why are you saying all this? Like, don't do that. <laughs> I remember when I was like six and my friend had Halo, and I remember sitting there and I was a bit, I was a sweet kid, and by that I mean. I always wanted to do the best obedience, like scouts honor everything. I like I saw that M rating and I got scared. And I look at my friend and go, is there any blood? And my friend goes, not unless you do this. And he turns around and starts shooting his ally in the face. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like screaming like, no, don't do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is which is especially funny nowadays when everyone looks at my tastes in media and thinks that I'm a dark, depressing, edgy girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, after that, I got a lot more interested in stuff. Movies always kind of come first for me just because they're easier to get into and it does not help that games can often be extremely long to a point of I'm a completionist in my mindset. I want to uh, finish the game no matter what if I start it. But sometimes it just gets to a point where I'm putting it off in like a year chunk because it's been so long since I play it and I'm afraid to touch it again. Yeah. So it, it, it's easier for me to play film to watch films because it's like two hours and done. But there's still a lot. In the last few years, I started during the pandemic because uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake was coming out. I bought a copy of Final Fantasy VII on the PS1 and put it in my PS2. And that that was a very satisfying experience to me. I That is one of my favorite games as well. I On my stream, I just finished playing Mass Effect 1 and I'm going to play the rest of the trilogy. And those games have been very fun. I mentioned Arkham Asylum and uh, Uncharted. I forgot Infamous was another one of those, which I feel like should get talked about. But I ended up going the whole platinum route with it because I found out it was decently easy. Uh, The shards are extremely annoying to collect, though. Mm -hmm. But I did it, and that was my first platinum trophy. And then the next year, my dad bought a PS4. Okay, funny story for this one. Uh, My dad bought a PS4 for himself because his friends told him that they love playing Call of Duty and he should get on there. And he was like, oh, Emily, Emily will like this too. My dad has severe motion sickness. <laughs> he cannot handle being on a boat. He is popping Dramamine and wearing two different C-bands on both his wrists to play 20 minutes of Call of Duty. He <laughs> fucking hates it. He's terrible. He's sick. He's not getting it. Like, my dad enjoys video games, but, like, he enjoys Tech Mobile. Like, that's... <laughs> so, basically, within three months, for the PS4 is basically just mine forever. During the pandemic, he grabs it a few times because he can't go golfing with his friends, so... I think this is also very adorable. He and his friends found the game PGA Golf Club. If, if someone's familiar with it in the audience, they'll know it is the game that Secret Base did with John Boys and uh, Kofi did, where they've just made the infinite golf courses with just chaos inside them. Mm-hmm. But it has exact copies of real life golf courses. And one of the ones was the one they were planning to do in March before the shutdown. And so they all got on and <laughs> talked over voice chat. My dad with the Turtle Beach headphones he had not, no one in the house had used for five years since he bought the PS4. And yeah, I feel like we're still in the infancy of gaming as a genre in a way. Like, I feel like it's still learning how to be weirder and weirder with it. Right. It's becoming more and more common to see games that don't use combat as the way of interacting while that was seen as the baseline for so long. Like seeing games like Disco Elysium get big or the entirety of like most itch.io horror games and stuff like that. It's interesting to see that evolve. And Portal's a good example of that as well. I just love the idea of being able to explore the things that only this medium can do. Doesn't mean I don't love a film, filmic story. I still love The Last of Us as well. But I, 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 I get it 
big kick out of games that use their medium to their advantage in the same way that like Silent Hill 2 or Bioshock all do that. And Portal is a great example. And it was one of my earliest introductions of how I loved it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like one. To think Sorry, of, that was a lot. <laughs> no, don't apologize at all. Like all of that was interesting. Like I had like little notes of like, oh, you know, it's just very funny that your your dad couldn't play PlayStation 4 because the device literally made him physically sick. Like video games makes your father oh, physically yeah. sick. <laughs> he never experienced the idea of moving in a first person scenario before. Yeah. There's a great story of my uh, that my mom loves telling where my dad skipped out on a date with her early on in their relationship because him and his friends were having a tech mobile tournament. Yeah. Um, even if you bring it into when he got that PS2, he was still playing NBA Live or Tiger Woods. He never had the idea of the visual of you are walking, but you're not that yeah. I was honed on from a very young age. So I could see how that just broke his brain. <laughs> Mike, why couldn't you breathe in there? I don't know how to work the body. It's you. It's it's you in there. You just need to breathe. Yeah, no, exactly. My uh my dad was not a gamer, but like while I lived with him, he did indulge the hobby. And I remember around like when Portal 2 was out, there's that opening sequence where uh the whole room is shaking and like you're in first person the entire game. And he's like saying, what are you doing? What are you what are you playing? And then like the, the room is shaking while you're in first person. It's like, I can't do this. I'm leaving. Like he, he couldn't last three minutes like watching the game, like when he was actively trying to engage with it, because like watching Portal 2 for a minute made him physically sick. Point is, video games kill our fathers. It's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nasty habit. I, I, I think that was the thing it was, yeah, like I thought it was funny, not only that my dad bought a video game that he couldn't play physically because it was hurting, <laughs> but also like. The idea that I got it and then I'm just like, oh, cool. Free PS4 with free <laughs> Last of Us code inside. Nice. You know, speaking of consoles, what is your personal favorite console? For me right now, it's PS2 because there's it feels like such an interesting jumping in gaming where everyone was used to 3D at that point. So a lot of genres just exploded in content. And it's before a lot of uh, consolidation that happened in the post-recession era of game companies getting more tight with money and figuring things out. So there's a lot more experimentation. And I kind of love that. It's the only generation I think where you can get a Silent Hill 2, uh, Silent Hill 2, Final Fantasy X, Metal Gear Solid 2, Devil May Cry, Max Payne 1, Kingdom Hearts, like all coming out within a year of each other and all being completely different and all being hits in ways because everyone's just trying something new. And there's something very interesting about that. And of course, yeah, like later on in the generation of Shadow of the Colossus and San Andreas, a lot of games that I really love. I, I, I'm worried I said Shadow of Colossus in the 2001 thing. I forgot that's ego. that was in 2001. You know, you're absolutely right. The PlayStation 2 is, I think, still to this day, the best-selling console ever made. And it had such a massive, massive library. And a lot of the games are classics. It's before, like, when everyone knew the formula yet, exactly. Like, they knew how to make games, but they still hadn't solidified. Like, the FPS trend hadn't taken over yet. 
it was a bit more wild with it and like kind of loved that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was also pre mobile game and like you said, pre uh, recession. So everybody who wanted to have licensing tie ins with established IP, like you were talking about in over over the hedge video game that you rented a bunch as a kid. People were just like, all right, let's put out a video game and like we can try and make it on the cheap, but we are going to release a full release video game. They don't do that anymore because one, it's a huge investment to make a video game now. And also we have mobile phones. You can just make an app or something. And also a lot of them weren't very good, but some of them were. And that was the weird thing. (laughs) Yeah, some Some of them them were were actually pretty good. As we mentioned earlier, but the SpongeBob games by... uh... I can't think of the studio, but the one that did Battle for Bikini Bottom. Uh, Heavy Iron Studios? Yeah, the, the SpongeBob movie uh, game are both, like, should be licensed game trash, but they're very good. <laughs> I've discovered that a lot of kids our age have, like, the same <laughs> license game. Did you also have Nicktoons Unite? <laughs> I sure I did. The, the four-player beat-em-up. Because <laughs> I never heard anyone mention it for years. And then Penny from Snapcube posted a video of her playing it. I was like, I thought I was the only one. We all just blocked it out. Yeah, no, I definitely played that game. For me, it was because I was a huge Danny Phantom fan. And it was like, there were no proper video games for Danny Phantom. It's like, why do we have like a fucking million Jimmy Neutron SpongeBob video games? But like the actual... Danny yeah. Fanta would fit very well in a gaming format. Yeah, they had like one. There was like a Game Boy Advance game that my little brother had. And then like he was a playable character in Nicktoons Unite. And there was also like this weird Game Boy Advance game where like you I can't remember. But it was like the whole gimmick was like it was a bunch of Nicktoons characters taking pictures with their camera. And that, that's not an action video. Yeah, game. I, I watched a video of someone <laughs> covering that. I, Scott the Waz talked about it in a recent video. Oh, no kidding. But like the, the whole premise of the game is like you were just a character walking on a, a set path like you don't it's like pokemon snap but side scrolling and you're just playing as a nicktoons character and it's like this this isn't enough and it, you know what the entire time they never nailed a danny phantom video game i've also looking through like I, I just looked up best ps2 games list there is a surprisingly amount of licensed games on here but we spider-man 2 yeah one that I feel like always needs to get brought up because it's ama- it's an amazing time capsule of just what I mean of like, we're still figuring out what the big thing is. Def Jam Fight for New York, which is now an extremely rare to find game. It's weird to think, yeah, we have an entire fighting game where you could fight a Snoop Dogg, Little, Little Kim, Ice-T, and Busta Rhymes. Mm-hmm. But that was just it was it was a experimentation time a few years later you get the 50 cent video game and you get two 50 cent video games yes but the, the first <laughs> one was more of a ps2 license game the second one was interesting because that was you could tell looking at it, you're like oh this is post gears of war this is post gears of war for sure yeah anytime you see like waist high walls everywhere you're like yeah Somebody played Gears of War here. Like That's basically every <laughs> game from like 2006 to 2010. Video games have dramatically changed. But like, yeah, the PlayStation 2, right? You're talking about those licensed games there. Like, I am covering the Warriors video game from 2005. Why the fuck were they making a Warriors video game? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's the point. It, it, it is wild that they even made that. Yeah. They had a Godfather video game, a Scarface video game, and a fucking... 
fucking Scar- okay, well, like, can game. we talk about the Scarface video game for one second? Very quickly, because yeah. the Scarface video game is wild because it makes. It, it, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the plot of it, but the plot is Tommy actually lived when shot, like yeah, in no. the back, like 18 times. <laughs> Yeah, no, I covered, uh, like, I talked about it very quickly on, like, the Tekken episode because I had a guest from the Pacino pod on there, uh, Jane Altoids. I said, like, do you know, like, what the deal is with the Scarface video game? It's like, fucking Scarface lives. They turn him into Swiss cheese in the movie, and then, like, the game picks up where it left off. It's like, I'm fine now. I'm Scarface again. <laughs> Which completely ruins the point of Scarface. And, like, they didn't need a Scarface video game. They already had one. It was called Vice City. <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to the Godfather game, uh, I one of my favorite video game uh, video essay series is uh, The Rise and Fall of Peter Molyneux by Kim Justice. And she points out that in there, the creator of Syndicate is the person behind uh, the Godfather game. And that's why it's so like similar playing to the classic Syndicate game and uh, like a lot of managerial stylizations of it. Yeah, sometimes you get somebody who actually understands the language of video games to uh, make a thoughtful video game adaptation of something. And then sometimes you just gets like some bullshit shovelware, like any of the Avatar The Last Airbender video games. Another franchise I was Guess a huge fan which one I also own. <laughs> I played all of them. My favorite fact about the Avatar video game is that you could get all of the of, of the achievements. You, like you can get the platinum trophy in the Avatar The Last Airbender game for uh, PS3 in like 10 minutes in the tutorial yeah no in the first level of burning earth you can like guys all the uh achievements are combo based and you can just rack up a long enough combo that you can platinum the game before you even beat the beat the first level it is it's nuts i i mentioned getting into less players earlier. one of my intros was achievement hunter and uh one of my favorite streamers is actually one of the former achievement hunter guys right in Arvaya's studio and one of his jokes would be if you ever need achievements get at Get Avatar Burger, play it for 15 minutes, and then go back to the store and return it. <laughs> you get the thousand points so quickly. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I played all of it. Yeah, so those are the games that we grew up with. What have you been playing lately? Yeah, as I said, I enjoyed Mass Effect 1 on stream. One of the things I realized was I was playing most of the side quests on stream. And so after one, I'm like, you know what? We just had an entire stream of side quests. I'm just going to beat a bunch of them in my free time. And I realized like so much of the charm of that game is just getting to interact with people and like learning about people. Yeah, no, uh, like the charm, especially of Mass Effect 2, which I covered on the show, are the side quests, like the loyalty missions that you do with your crew is what makes that game so good. Like Mass Effect 1, like there's a problem with like a lot of the structure of the side quests kind of being the same because like that game is just so different from Mass Effect 2. But yeah, if you're playing Mass Effect 2 on stream, like the big, the big, like emotional, like I'm connecting with my crew stuff is going to happen in like the side quest of that game. That's the thing is one of my favorite moments is I might have played this one on stream, but in the first game, when you have Garrus and he's been hunting this guy for years and he got away and you face him and Garrus is begging you, just shoot him, just shoot him. And you have the option to just say, no, he has to stand trial. We are not doing that. And then he shoots at you, and then you have to kill him. And they raise the important point of Garrett's statement, like, so we did all of that, and we still ended up having to kill him anyway. And you have to kind of explain to Garrus, like, we had no choice there. We wanted to give the choice to ourselves to still, like, make the choice to not be driven by revenge. And it 
causes that great moment where Garrus understands Shepard a lot more. And I was like sitting there like, this is super fascinating, especially because Garrus is like, I consider him like the best blood of the series. Like, I just relate to him. Although Rex is also up there as well. One of my favorite moments that happened on stream was Liara's in the party with me with Rex and <laughs> Rex turns to Liara and goes, I think you could handle Shepard. And Liara turns to, to Rex and goes, do you always think about fighting? And then there's a beat and Rex goes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, and yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a fun series where if you like the character dynamics and stuff, as janky as like the combat of the first game is like, I still like reflect fondly on the actual, uh, the, the crew missions on that. Like the, the Garrus mission you mentioned is probably my favorite part of the game. Yeah. yeah. And Rex is like the best dude. So you're, you're absolutely right about that. Rex. Shepard. Are there any games that you're looking forward to playing in the future? Doesn't necessarily have to be a new release. It could just be something on your backlog. But uh, what are you looking forward to playing? I recently picked up. I haven't played it yet, but I've been wanting to get more into fighting games recently just because Street Fighter 6 got a lot of people talking about it and it made me interesting because I've never really got into the fighting games as a gamer. So I God saying as a gamer makes me want to throw up. It's actually part of the Pledge of Allegiance now. One nation as a gamer. Fuck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as a result, I've been looking at Guilty Gear Strive recently because I wanted to pick it up for Bridget. And I'm just very interested in checking out more of it for sure because uh, I haven't gotten to pick it up yet, but it seems very much my thing. Of course, I'm extremely excited for the Persona 3 remake because I've never gotten to play Persona 3. Persona 3 is like one of those games that I believe just never had its perfect version. This seems like the closest there, but it still doesn't have FEMC, and that makes me disappointed. Also, they still, I hope they've removed the transphobic scene, because Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, it, uh, a very unfortunate part of, I mean, you look at any media, especially specifically from like 1999 to like well, the late 2000s. Persona has had a lot of issues with, <laughs> with homophobia. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I remember a lot of it Persona from Hashina, 4. from what I understand. Yeah, no, I remember like at the time, Persona 4, people were like, what's with the homophobia in this? Like in, at the time, at the time of release, people were saw, talking about it that way. So that's just like how ingrained it is. And in they the made it worse in Golden by having the uh, the voice for Kanji do a more lispy voice to make it funnier that he is uh, like that there's this dungeon where he's a gay man. Ah. Occasionally, people on Twitter will fight me about it when I'm like, I love these games, but they are like Persona 4 is definitely the most uncomfortable for its queer phobia. And they'll be like, oh, Naoto isn't trans. And I go, okay, but do you see their dungeon where they have a bunch of experimental surgeries and hacksaws? Have you looked at the news lately? That's how trans folks portray top surgery and stuff like that. But at the same time, a lot of it, I know from my friend who's super into SMT, that like a lot of it is just that guy who's been running Persona for years, which is uh, uh, Hashino, who also did Catherine. And the interesting thing is like, yeah, the example he gave is there's a character in the main SMT series where the whole idea of them is because they're a god, they're like androgynous, gender fluid in a way. Except in Hashino's version, where that character is age-fluid instead, and definitively male. 
and you look at that, you go, yeah, that sounds like it, it is mostly this one guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong on that, but it is... It's one of those things where, like, Persona I can play, Catherine I'll never be able to play just because it hits too close to home as a trans woman. Like, just mm -hmm. the way they treat Erica in that, that game. Yeah. I've, I've, like, this is something that I'm only an outside observer for because I haven't played a lot of Atlas games. I'm trying to get into them, and, like, this is something I've definitely been, like, informed of, but it isn't something that I could, like, speak to. But I appreciate you giving me a perspective on it. Yeah. The thing is, I wouldn't be playing these games if I didn't enjoy them. And that's it, though. Like, I think that they don't ruin these games like some people put them out to be. But it is still something where I have to look at it and go, yeah, I have to admit when something makes me uncomfortable. No, exactly. I think people have, like, this weird thing where, like, something they love has to feel unimpeachable because, like, our unhealthy parasocial relationship with media where it's like, I like thing, therefore it is mine. And therefore, like, it is a part of my personality. And by criticizing it, you're criticizing me in some way. So people will feel weird about, like, you know, p having genuine critique about the depiction of uh, sexuality or race or gender in any kind of media. And, like, there are people who are of those identities or are part of those cultures or anything else who, you know, will offer light critique as fans of the games. And, like, they, they get pushback and it's like, we're not saying it's ruinous. We just want these games to be better because we do like them. And we also want to be able to just like not be mocked or hurt when we experience these things. And I don't think that that is like a big demand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a normal thing to want to have in a video game is to not feel like you're being shat on all the time. I, I mentioned Final Fantasy 16 earlier as a game that came out this year that people are loving that I also want to check out and I don't have a PS5, so I'm waiting on it a little bit, but, uh, I think about the controversy I was having beforehand where they don't have any people of color in the game. It is just Europeans. I, I think it's very interesting because I engaged with it one way before the game came out. And then afterwards, I mentioned the podcast earlier, Castle Super Beast. They brought up like the reason why this game doesn't have black people in it is not the reasons they gave is because a huge theme in this game is slavery and they would be on the noose if they had it. And I'm like, yeah, we can still criticize it for that. And it's interesting to engage. I still think it's good to criticize the fact beforehand that there that that's not a good excuse anyway. But it is an interesting dynamic to look at now and be like, hey, let's look at it from both perspectives and say we can still criticize gaming in general for using that excuse of authenticity for not having, you know, people of color in games when there's magic in the same game, you know, like I can use magic. But if I see a black person, my <laughs> my idea, my uh, concept of reality is ruined. My immersion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was trying to think of the word. And yeah, it's a good thing to critique things, even if you love them. And even if they have a good excuse for it, you should still say in general, it's good to criticize gaming anyway, you know, like. Sometimes things could have what looks like a problematic element that isn't there. That doesn't mean that the fact that you assumed it was bad because you probably assumed it because gaming has these issues sometimes. And it's okay to criticize gaming as a whole, even if one version isn't the best example. Or to put it in a simple way, it is totally fine to be a hater. There is nothing more morally <laughs> correct than being mad at a video game or being a hater towards a video game. In fact, hating is good. As long as you're hating in good faith, it is always the right thing to do. If you're hating in bad faith, 
shut the fuck up, you weird bigot. Why are you here? I'm going to block you now. Hating on even it's good to sometimes hate on the thing you love. I I enjoyed Final Fantasy X, but I was the first person to admit of like, oh, there's some stuff in this have not aged. Mm hmm. Like just playing it and I'm like. Oh, Waka is so over the top racist that they can't actually walk it back perfectly in the storyline. <laughs> and I, I think that's fair to say because I enjoyed the game, but it's still fair to say, yes, this is a tw- 2001 portrayal of racism in the same way that Final Fantasy VII is one of my favorite games. And I could admit the one black man being the guy with a gun for a hand is a little and then and like a stereotypical hairstyle is not too <laughs> is maybe not the best either. Right. And I think a lot of people get defensive about it because like Barrett is like a well-written character, but presentation yeah. of something and the writing of something are two completely disparate things. You see it all the time in movies where the script is one thing and a direction is another. Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. It's a James Gunn script, but the direction is just saying a completely different thing than the script is. And it creates this dissonance. I a perfect example for me is I love a lot of GTA games. San Andreas, I started playing it uh, a few years ago. I still haven't finished it because I just got involved in so many different games in the meantime. But I think I prefer it to five in a lot of ways because I like the characterization. It's still homophobic. Like it's still <laughs> 2005 humor. The mo- one of the most iconic vehicles in the GTA series is called the Fugio. Like, it's very obvious what the pun is. Like, it's okay to critique that and still be like, I love it. But holy shit. Yeah, look, it's okay. It's always okay to be a hater. And like, there's plenty of, you know, legitimate reasons to hate a game, whether it's for like bigotry reasons or bad taste. And there's also just like, hey, you know what? If you don't like a game and it's not for you, that's okay to hate on it too. As again, as long as you're doing it in good faith. But like the idea that like... Hey, let's get some equity in this shit. And then some weirdo from like who has never like left their house in years and is just afraid of like the idea of other human beings existing saying, like, no, don't touch that. Shut the fuck up. But again, <laughs> otherwise, be a hater, but be normal about it. Yeah. I the I think one of the things that helps us is like I we're both from film backgrounds in a lot of way. It helps knowing film history and like looking at all the movies you like and being like, oh. 90% of the movies I like were made by monsters. Like it makes it so much easier to be like, I can like a thing and still criticize it. If you have that distance already baked in. And so it makes it easier for me to feel comfortable critiquing something like Lost in translation was one of the most important movies for me as a kid. I haven't returned to it in years because I read one of the critiques by actual Japanese people of the film and it opened my eyes in a way. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing to have in all mediums. Gaming is obviously the most hostile to it because it's number one, the youngest and number two, it is the youngest in terms of audience as well. Yeah, there's the audience thing. And then there's the fact that like this was the medium that grew up with the Internet. So like there is like this very specific relationship with like, you know, Internet communities and like the specific toxicity of that and like video games because like those things are growing up in tandem with one another and like you said it being the youngest medium and they're still definitely figuring a lot of things out i mean i joked about it earlier like 
I shuddered at calling myself a gamer. Like, logically, I am one, and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm ashamed of the people who call themselves gamers as a badge of honor who make it weird. Like, that's the thing. Like, I know logically I am a film buff. I still feel like it's one of those things where the label is much more toxic for gaming than it is for other media because of all those factors. And gaming's only been around for 40 years now, 40, 50 years now. It's still kind of, in terms of artistic mediums, it's still kind of going through puberty. Yeah, no, it is, definitely. And like, yeah, there's like this weird thing where it's like, yeah, I'm trying to, I, I have a podcast about video games, right? Or um, I love movies so much. We're on it right now. Yeah, I know. Here we are, right? <laughs> Fuck. Um, so enough about dunking on video games. Let's... uh move the conversation to a more positive direction before we talk about today's game. Before we talk about Portal, are there any other video games that mean a lot to you that you want to shout out? Yes, I mentioned it earlier, but I'm a huge fan of the game Silent Hill 2. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough last year to experience... Uh, I had a friend who had never played it before, sat down on my couch, and they played it while I watched because I had played it in the past and this was my time revisiting it but I got to revisit it through watching another person experience it for the first time and I I love the way that game plays in a way where it is so lynchian in its direct storyline but it manages to through its combat make you feel so helpless helpless and some people complain that it's clunky. I think that's part of it. I think that's the point, is that James has never had to fight for his life like this, ever. And barely knows how to fire a gun. And there's something so powerful to the narrative it constructs. And it makes me very scared about the possibility of this remake and mm -hmm. the movie coming out, where I am worried that they won't do a good job, particularly because of uh, the history behind... Um, I can't think of the company's name that's taking over it. But Is it Bloober? <laughs> yeah, Bloober Team. Mm -hmm. Their history with the medium, which is also a game that has themes of sexual assault and violence and things like that. And I guess spoilers for the medium, infamously has an ending where the trauma victim has to die because you can't save everyone, which implies the message of some people with trauma are inherently broken and are should be allowed to die, which is a terrifying message. I don't think that was maybe exactly what they intended, but that's what came out as a result. Yeah, look, Blue Team developed a Blair Witch game that suggests it that the Blair Witch caused the Gulf War. I don't think they're equipped to do a Silent Hill 2 game, but I would love to be proven wrong. I would love to be yeah, told same. that this, this company is capable of, you know, telling sensitive storylines. And as much as I'm weirded out by them recasting the voice cast, I do understand why you would uh, not cast Guy Sihi as he has become a weird COVID denialist. And I understand. Silent Hill 2 is real and happen didn't happen to me. COVID didn't, though. I, don't know. <laughs> I, I feel like I forget until I replay the game just like how mature the writing is compared to, as I mentioned, like a lot of 2011 stuff was like that as well. Like, Obviously, MGS2 was extremely well written, but then you compare it to other stuff that was coming that would come afterwards in terms of horror games and around that same period, it feels like nothing has ever been in video games as interestingly mature. As I mentioned, like Lynchian, it feels like it handles a lot of sensitive topics in the same way that Twin Peaks does, where you're kind of looking at it and you're going, This is terrifying, 
but also still responsible and empathetic while still creating a dreamlike horror atmosphere. Like it feels like a miracle that it happened. Right. And I think that speaks to your point earlier about the PlayStation 2 being this experimental time. You know, MGS2 and Silent Hill 2 came out around the same time. And I do think that like as video games have become more popular, which is, you know, a good thing that this medium is becoming more popular. It also creates this problem where these games are being more micromanaged on a supervisory level. Now that these like games are like, it takes longer to make a video game. People don't want to take as much risk making a game that has like, you know, an uncomfortable control scheme like a Silent Hill 2 or like has very confrontational themes about power dynamics like MGS2 does. We've talked about a lot of video games. It's time for us to talk about the game that you picked. An incredible game, one that has an incredible legacy. It is 2007's Portal. Portal is a first-person puzzle platformer developed and published by Valve Corporation, also known as Valve Software. Valve is known for games such as the Half-Life series, the Counter-Strike series, the Team Fortress series, the Left 4 Dead series, Dota 2, and so on. Valve is also known for the video game distribution service Steam, currently the largest digital distribution platform for PC gaming. Unlike Valve's more well-known properties, Portal had very humble beginnings and a very small development team. It began as a senior game project for a group of DigiPen students called Narbacular Drop. This is a game that was never formally released and was developed as more of a playable proof of concept for the game's portal mechanic. The game caught the attention of Valve developer Robin Walker, who was attending a career fair at DigiPen in 2005. Walker facilitated a meeting at Valve's offices so these students could show off the game. Valve president Gabe Newell offered the team jobs and those employees would go on to develop the game that we're talking about today, Portal, which would release a little over two years later. Portal's development team was never more than 10 people. The game's designer was Kim Swift. She was a producer on Narbacular Drop and would also work on Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2 during her time at Valve. Portal was composed by Kelly Bailey and Mike Moraski. Kelly Bailey was the composer for Half-Life and Half-Life 2, as well as their episodic expansions. Mike Moraski was a visual effects artist who worked on the Lord of the Rings films, as well as the Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. With Valve, he composed Team Fortress 2, the Left 4 Dead series, as well as Portal 2, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, and Half-Life Alex. The end credit song was written by musician Jonathan Colton, and Chet Felizek and Eric Wolpaul were the writers for this game. Felizek and Wolpaul would also serve as writers for Left 4 Dead and Portal 2. As for the game's story, Portal is set entirely in the Aperture Science Laboratory's computer-aided enrichment center. An artificial intelligent program known as GLaDOS wakes you up from a stasis bed and says that you, a woman named Chell, are about to participate in a series of tests. These test chambers are challenges pertaining to the use of the portal gun, which allows the user to travel between two portals that can be placed on flat surfaces. These challenges become more and more complex and dangerous as they go along, and the facility seems suspiciously empty except for GLaDOS. Shenanigans ensue. Portal was originally released for PC and Xbox 360 as part of the Orange Box in October of 2007. We'll talk about the games and the contents within the Orange Box shortly. But other games released in 2007 include Super Mario Galaxy, Pokemon Diamond and Pearl, The Legend of Zelda Phantom Hourglass, Metroid Prime 3 Corruption, Crackdown, Halo 3, Bioshock, Mass Effect, The Darkness, and Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. 
really quickly, Emily, have you played any of these games? I played Bioshock on that list. I haven't played Metroid Prime 3. Uh, yeah, a lot of those I haven't played. I know the original Mass Effect also came out in 2007 as well. And yeah. Bioshock is one of my favorite games as well. As someone who I mentioned earlier doesn't play a lot of shooters, Bioshock is... I always found the way Bioshock controls to be very, very fluid, and I like that. And as we'll discuss here, I love environmental storytelling in games, and both of those games, both Portal and Bioshock, are incredible at at uh, environmental storytelling. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of uh, Bioshock is the atmosphere and the environmental storytelling. And that definitely goes hand in hand with Portal, which while are two very visually different and thematically different games, do get the same point across in a first-person perspective. So are, are both very good at environmental storytelling. Both also very critical of uh, corporations as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> different methods, but like, yeah, a lot of, a lot of similarities. Yeah, I played most of these games. Uh, 2007 was a huge year for video games in general. It was the start of a bunch of franchises like Mass Effect, Uncharted, and Assassin's Creed. But Rock Band, I believe that was the first year of Rock Band, too. And, you know, you mentioned Call of Duty 4. I I haven't played it, but from what I understand, that is what most people consider to be the peak of the modern military shooter era of that time. It's that game. Yeah, no, it definitely changes the trajectory of the franchise moving forward, for sure. Let's not forget the best game of 2007, the B-movie game. Of course, but hey, you didn't pick the B-movie game. You picked Portal. <laughs> what what made you settle on Portal? Uh, I figured the B-movie game was too famous. No. Uh, <laughs> Portal is, uh, in a lot of ways, it is my favorite game. I mentioned earlier that it was a big part of me developing my interest in games, but also there's something so interesting about it because... We hear a lot about people discussing game lengths and is this game length worth this many dollars and things like that. And I always like to say the same phrase I say about films where I say I've seen 90 minute films that felt too long and three hour films that felt too short. It's all about pacing. And the thing I love about Portal is it's only at most around like two hours long. Or if you're like me as a kid, it's a weekend long because you have to get the computer. but it's it never overstays its welcome and yet it never feels like it's too short either it always feels like a complete satisfying experience and i appreciate that because in the modern era where games are trying to become live services and infinite content machines it can feel good to just have something satisfying that ends well and hits you well i really like the storytelling in it as well the obvious example being the first rat man room where mm-hmm. i i love pointing this out to people where you have the obviously it's in the live turret section it's the famous cake is a live thing and you see the two cubes wedged up against the wall and once you remove them you are of, of no obligation to go in there everyone just goes in there through the design of the area and i find that super fascinating it's funny to me that people always that the cake is a lie became the meme because to me when I first walked in there as a 14-year-old, I knew the meme. The thing that stood out to me was the word help scrawled out in blood on the floor. I think that's one of the things I really like about the game is like it has this dark sense of humor, but it does still have a bite to it. It still is allowed to be lets itself be more dramatic. And I'm sure part of that is the influence of uh, Eric Wolpaw. The Ratman character isn't explored as much in the uh, game but it is such an interesting part of the lore that they literally that they literally were able to make a spin-off comment comic on it 
I, I like that there's a bit of uh, Half-Life influence on it, but it feels like it's its own separate world. Like, it, it's still part of that world, but it feels like Ch- uh, GLaDOS's isolation has resulted in a very different kind of uh, vibe in that sense. Like, one of the most terrifying she, things she said in the game is... Are you trying to escape? <laughs> things have changed since the last time you left the building. What's going on out there will make you wish you were back in here. I have an infinite capacity for knowledge, and even I'm not sure what's going on outside. Yeah, no, it is definitely a game that, like, it it, ta- it like it does have, like, those references to Half-Life, but it is never, ever in a way where it's like, oh, you should have played Half-Life before this, or you should go play Half-Life instead. It's usually in jokes, too. Like, one of my favorite things is when you are able to escape GLaDOS, from that and you walk through the offices of Aperture. If you look through one of the windows, you see a PowerPoint presentation that says how to beat Black Mesa at DOD contracts. Mm-hmm. And that was the presentation they were giving, obviously before the implied destruction of Aperture at the hands of GLaDOS. Yeah. It's never um, cloying or anything like that, but it is definitely like hey, let's just put in some like little references that like people can like who people who know can like get a kick out of that. But it's never something that it's like joke, demands- but it also adds an ominous layer to it as well, because there I think one of the reasons why I prefer Portal 1 to Portal 2 is just that there's a lot more of a focus on complete alienation of just being stuck as a lab rat in a way that mm-hmm. really gets played on in the ambiance. I feel like people don't mention the score enough of this game. It is a very good score. It is. Very ambient and effective. I like the fact that you are slowly like unraveling things through the way you play. Like the fact that if you accidentally shoot a portal at one of the uh, security cameras without even knowing it, you uh, set off an entire thing where she yells at you for interfering with the security cameras, the famous, you know. Security cameras are an important part of the test facility. You only figure that out typically if you are told to, or if you do it by accident. Mm-hmm. I guess it's very Valvian design. Like it is a very Valve thing to just very Half-Life in, uh, influence, where they sort of design the idea of just you discover things by walking into it and having to survive through it. And I think the idea of forming it as a lab test always makes it very interesting especially because the puzzles here they're not too hard but they're hard enough where they're like interesting and they give you because it's unlike a lot of puzzle games they don't give you timers or anything like that the idea is just you figuring it out there's a lot more satisfaction i believe in Mm. it like even though i played this game a million times replaying it today i still struggled with occasional things and that was very fun to me for example, during the uh, the escape sequence where you have this duct you have to get into, I was trying to figure out how to do it. You have to find the puzzle piece to shoot the rocket into the tube that's uh, transmitting the, the cubes, the weighted cubes. So it breaks it, you get a cube from there, you climb up on top and you get into the vent. Right. And I, I really like the way that they sort of naturally have all that come together. And it's very interesting. You mentioned earlier that you got this as like part of a sale where like both games are basically $5. What was your first experience with this game and how did you come into playing it? I feel like a lot of it is because of the memes I heard about Cake is a Lie. I didn't know what that was from, so I looked into it. 
in the same way that I've been spoiled some very famous video game twists as a result, uh, which you kindly was spoiled to me beforehand because it was a giant Reddit meme as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard of it and I had seen people play it. And obviously this was also around 2011 where Portal 2 had just come out and it was a very big game. I, at the current, and uh, 2011 at that time, didn't have any sense of reference for the Portal 1. I just knew of Portal 2, so I only knew of it through the ads I saw. But I knew of that there had to be a Portal 1 and everything beyond there. And eventually, I get once I got more into games, I'd look more into it and discover more about it. I sort of fell in love with the idea of like this very singular experience that there's a lot of games that go for portal vibes, but I feel like there's very few that feel exactly like the ambiance, uh, the terrifying ambiance of portal mixed with the fun puzzle gameplay that completely click in the same way. Sure. There's definitely a, there was definitely a, a surge of first person video games with a puzzle solving as like the main thing coming out uh, in the wake of portal. Like it was definitely influential in that way, but there's still nothing specifically like it. It is still very unique. Like all those games that have come out since then are all compared to Portal. And it's very clear that Portal is an influence on them, whether consciously or unconsciously, because it showed that like these kinds of games can be made in this kind of general presentation format. And it was uh, an early example. Obviously, Half-Life 2 showed off the source engine the most, but it this was the first game to really use physics as the main kicking play component like half-life 2 showed off what physics can be portal one is all physics as an attitude i mean it's it's hard to say because like with half-life 2 there's definitely an emphasis on physics more so than half-life one there's a lot of like seesaw puzzles and a lot of weight distribution puzzles and obviously the gravity gun is a late game item or like is a mid-game item that like really redefines the gameplay for most of the rest of the game and then becomes like supercharged with like the ragdoll abilities that it can create towards the end because there's also other weaponry as well yeah there's that and then like the whole like thing around the gravity gun kind of becomes the impetus for gary's mod which becomes like that whole thing so it's hard to say like if portal uses physics more but it does like you say like it builds like there's a lot going on in half-life 2 in addition to the physics whereas like portal 2 is a very much a physics-based game that that's what I mean, I guess, is like okay. it's the first it's one of the first examples I can think of where physics were not only just a part of the game that was very important, like we'd see in Half-Life, Half-Life 2, obviously the, the infamous Jurassic Park trespasser. But like this was one of the first games I can think of where the physics were the entirety of the gameplay. Okay. Yeah. It was based around the idea of momentum the interaction of certain objects with each other as the entire way you interact with the space. Momentum, a function of mass and velocity, is conserved between portals. In layman's terms, speedy thing goes in, speedy thing comes out. And it's rare to think of of games that do it not like this well, but like in general have been willing to put that much stock into a phys- their physics engine to be like that because physics engines are notoriously difficult to get completely right mm. on your own which is why most of the industry is led by like six different engines that are easier to plug in to, to have source not only put their money where their mouth is in half-life 2 but to then go not only that the entire of the game 
is based around puzzles where if any time the physics messed up, mess up, the entirety of the game breaks is very interesting. And I think it succeeds very well as a result. Right. There's like two things that are very impressive about Portal as a game. And that's one like Valve being confident enough to give this new set of employees like the keys to make a video game based off their concept they're going to include in their collection, the orange box, but also like the confidence in their in-house engine source and building that game within that. It's, it's such confidence and you don't see that kind of like earned confidence very often. Like I think the most recent example I can think of is like Tears of the Kingdom, which was like built off of Breath of the Wild still. But yeah, and also that was part of the Legend of Zelda series. I think another thing to point out is that this was a new IP that no one had ever heard of. Right. Being put next to Team Fortress 2 that at that point had been built up for 10 years and the episodes of Half-Life 2 that were huge already. And it just was part of it. And it was, you know, arguably is the thing that was like most talked about when that orange box dropped was, hey, have you seen this game that's also a part of it that none of us were, you know, knew about completely? Right. Again, I wasn't there at the time. I was eight. But sure. <laughs> but that's what I understand at the time was like, it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere in a way, despite the fact that it was from Valve, because it was put next to all of these bigger projects and it held its own. For sure. Uh, and we'll talk more about Portal and its influence on both the gaming industry and on ourselves in a moment. But before we do that, I'd like to do a little segment on the show where I talk about the availability of the game that we're talking about in a segment called No Country for Old Games. Video game preservation means a great deal to me. As time goes on, video games of previous generations become more and more difficult to access, and publishers aren't motivated to keep their older titles on modern hardware. This makes it hard for new players to discover games that have made profound impacts on the players fortunate enough to be able to play them. Silent Hill 2 is one that is sort of lost to time as an example. Absolutely. In this segment, we're going to rate the availability of today's game on a scale of A- to ARG, and ARG is obviously my expression of frustration at how hard it is to acquire a game, and it is not me covertly advocating for piracy. Piracy is illegal. We'll get to that in a second, though, but before we talk about the different myriad of ways somebody can play Portal in today's ecosystem, Emily, when you get the urge to replay this game, how do you do it? Uh, I usually do it through Steam. Actually, as a result, I decided to look up the Steam page for Portal. Currently, both Portal and Portal 2 are both selling for a dollar each. Yeah, it is a game that is always affordable, the degrees to which uh, vary, but Steam usually always has some sort of sale going on, especially in the summer and winter times. So talking a little bit about the history of Portal's availability, this game was originally released on the Orange Box, a compilation of five games developed by Valve, the contents of which include 2004's Half-Life 2, its 2006 expansion Half-Life 2 Episode 1, as well as the new releases Half-Life 2 Episode 2, the team-based multiplayer shooter game Team Fortress 2, and today's game Portal. Now, the Orange Box was originally released for Windows and Xbox 360 in October of 2007. It was also released on PlayStation 3 in America in December that same year. The PlayStation 3 version of the Orange Box was not as well received as the 360 and PC versions due to some technical issues. We've talked about this in previous episodes, but the PlayStation 3 was a very weird console in terms of how it was built. 
So it wasn't uncommon for PlayStation 3 versions of multi-platform games to have more issues than the 360 or the PC version. But that is just reiterating a point I've talked about before. Before we you had those forward. six USB ports, though. Yeah, I mean, look, if you needed to charge six phones at once, what else were you going to use? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, before we go further, Emily, have you played any of the other games included in the Orange Box? I have. Uh, I've played a little bit of Half Life Two. I haven't played any Team Fortress Two though. I haven't really? played. I haven't finished Half Life Two. I've been meaning to. I'm bad with playing games on my computer just because I use my macbook for like all my work so i typically try to focus on some to make it move it to the tv or something like that if i'm going to be playing games which makes it a whole thing to set up yeah i mean i've talked about this before like this is my workstation i record my podcast here i work from home so i'm working 40 hours a week on a full-time job and then i'm recording the podcast i'm editing the podcast that's the hardest part of anything is the editing which takes up so much time so like i'm usually working on my computer and i have that psychological association of work that makes it difficult for me to play video games i also have the issue of it's a laptop and it's a mac laptop <laughs> even with the windows half my computer it's not very i get eight year old mac laptop too so like it can run skyrim mm-hmm. that's probably the soonest game it can run i guess rocket league but like yeah like it it is not very good with a lot of intensive games now obviously Source games are not as much of an issue. They're usually pretty well optimized for any machine, pretty much, as long as you're not using like a Windows 98 level, like (laughs) something made prior to it. But like, you know, if you have something that was made from around 2005 or later, like you could usually run a source game on it at this point. I would say most commercial laptops that was made in like the 2010s and later very easily would be able to run. Uh, a source engine game they're not graphically demanding they have settings that you can adjust if it isn't doing not crisis yeah but source games are usually the easiest games to play on laptops in my experience speaking really quickly to my experience about the other games on the orange box i played all of them i love the half-life franchise i played portal before anything else because i got that as a steam gift from a friend because when portal 2 came out he already had portal and like the I think the PC version or the Steam version like had a code for Portal for those who hadn't played it. And he just gave me his code and that was my introduction to the series. So I was very fortunate that I got to play the series and I was playing it on like a 2011 shitty laptop and it ran perfectly fine. But yeah, that was my introduction to Valve's library. After that, Team Fortress 2 shortly thereafter became free to play and I played that obsessively. I think to this day, it is still my most played game of all time. Uh, and then from there, like I started getting into Steam sales and I was a high school kid who didn't have a job yet. So like having money wasn't something I could do. So I was able to eventually like during a summer sale buy the entirety of the Half-Life series for around $20. And then I played those obsessively. Yeah. So huge, huge fan of all the games that were on the orange box. But Portal, I think still might be my favorite just because of how that was my introduction to like this entire library and how simple it all is and how much it fits yeah. into its simple presentation. It especially like compared to the Half-Life series, which like, as I mentioned, like they, they, they are good at immersion in a lot of ways, but they are a lot more weighty with their conclusions. You know, it's world domination. It's everything. There's a lot of moving parts in Half-Life that portal does not lack for depth in that, I should be clear, but mm-hmm. also 
like as a result it's a bit more simple but it i think that is a skill in its way that it is more simple but no less in terms of depth right i i, I said simple but i think deceptively simple would be a better way yeah of saying, exactly yeah there's a lot like, going on yeah, as, I, as we said like it's short it's it's pretty simple to figure out but it never feels like it's dumbing down to you or that it's not satisfying or that there isn't a level of complexity and story intrigue inside it. It's just, you don't have to learn the names of various alien races to understand it. <laughs> right. I think like uh, with, you know, Half-Life, those games, like there's a lot of weapons and obviously a lot of, um, it, they're bigger games. Like you said, they're full release blockbuster video games that are usually <laughs> like also like carrying the weight of like demonstrating some technical prowess or advancement in video games. Uh, that's why it took them so long for them to release half-life Alex is because like they weren't going to touch that franchise unless they were certain they had some kind of advancement to bring along with it. There are people who are certainly attached to the lore of those things, but their main concern as a developer is to like bring something new. And I mean, half-life half-life two and portal are all things that brought things dramatically new to the world of video games that track record is something that is definitely burdensome for them, but they definitely meet the task when it is assigned to them. I would agree, but I will also, I will dispute that some of uh, <laughs> Valve's uh, famous uh, dedication to waiting for a game to be completely innovative is a little bit ruined by Artifact. Just <laughs> how very obviously that was just we need a card game. <laughs> no, but for a while it was like a very common thing where it'd be like, yeah, in the same way that Left 4 Dead, like once once that came out, like it innovated so much in terms of multiplayer co-op and things like that. Yeah, I mean, like the team based multiplayer shooter stuff and like Team Fortress 2 and what that brought to that. There's and like the ecosystem of like the 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 hats and the trading system of Team Fortress 2. Like, I mean, it became its own economy within the economy of steam like they have definitely done a lot for better or worse in the industry i mean that's part of why it took 10 years for team fortress 2 to come out eventually too yeah uh but we're digressing talking about the availability of portal it was originally released on the orange box but it had a standalone release on steam in april of 2008 roughly six months after the original release of the orange box also in 2008 Portal Still Alive was released in October of 2008 as an Xbox Live arcade exclusive, which featured the original game as well as 14 new challenges. None of the new content was story related, but this version can still be downloaded and played on any modern Xbox devices to this day. Portal was the first Valve developed game to be OS X compatible. It was available when the Steam client launched for Mac in May of 2010, but you mentioned uh, before we recorded that uh, you tried to play the game on your Mac, but it didn't work because on Mac devices, 64-bit systems can't run games that are originally built for 32-bit hardware. Am I, am I representing that correctly? Yeah, so if you have a 64-bit Mac OS, it refuses to run on uh, your Mac OS. That's the thing. It runs on OS X. Mac OS has since become its own different version, the 64-bit version that has taken over. And uh, they changed it from OS X to Mac OS. And I believe that is maybe part of the divide. No, because I played it after I updated it. To... It eventually became a thing where the system upgraded to 64-bit Intel. And it phased out 32-bit, 
which made it impossible for it to run anything that was 32-bit. And obviously, these games are designed to be 32-bit. It feels weird that something from 2007 could be considered dated to a point where you'd need a GOG system to run it. Mm -hmm. That feels strange to me. That probably is more of a Apple thing than anything else. But if I want to make myself feel old, how much things have advanced since 2007. Sure. We can we can complain about being scared and old. I'm just going to say, fuck you, Tim Apple. We'll continue. <laughs> Tim Apple, my favorite. Yeah. Let's move forward. The game also runs on Linux. On June 28th, 2022, Portal Companion Collection was released on Switch. This includes Portal as well as Portal 2. This version of Portal includes the 14 bonus chambers previously exclusive to the Xbox Still Alive version of the game. It also includes the option for motion controls with the Joy-Con gyroscopes. This version was developed by Valve alongside NVIDIA Lightspeed Studios. And speaking of NVIDIA, most recently, Portal with RTX was released in December, sorry, on December 8th, 2022. It is free DLC for Steam users who already own the original Portal. It is a full remaster of the game with updated textures and realistic lighting to show the real-time ray tracing possible with NVIDIA's GeForce 40 series cards. To make this not sound like an advertisement, basically it's a glorified tech demo. It is a new version of the game that you can download in addition to the original on PC. But look, as dated as the Source engine is, it's not dated to the point that it is like hurting to the eyes to play this game. I think this no. game holds up tremendously well. It helps that it's not as brown as some other games at the time. Yeah. It's not only timeless about the atmosphere of like how cleanly and sterile the the test chambers are, mm-hmm. but like not only does it survive as a result of that, but also it it's more ominous and uh atmospheric as a result. Yeah. It's, it, it definitely helps that it doesn't have the ugly color grading and bloom that a lot of the contemporary video games of 2007 had. Yeah, this game is definitely not an ARG. It isn't quite an A either. Um, the Xbox yeah. 360 release of Portal is fully backwards compatible with the Xbox One and Series X and S, which is spectacular. Uh, you can. So still... I would argue that it controls way better on PC than anywhere else. Oh yeah, I mean like it, just... that it is a first person shooter. If you if you have the ability to use mouse and keyboard it is definitely the preferred way of playing it for me it's very clear for a lot of valve games that they were designed for mouse and keyboard ease a lot quicker yeah they're they've always been a pc forward uh developer yeah uh, like half-life and i don't think that's a bad thing but yeah. it is important to note that like I, I immediately went "Ooh, they put it on switch and i went you don't want to play this on switch you you have it on steam that's where you're gonna want to play it. yeah it's the the question of like do i want to play this on switch is a I, I I struggle with like PC gaming on like the on the psychological level, but I own the yeah. games. I'm not going to buy them again digitally. If, if a physical that, option. That's the came thing. Up, absolutely. Is if, but, if you have a switch and that's where you're going to play every game, mm-hmm. then I'm sure it's not bad on there. But if you already own it on Steam, I'm sure there's not really a reason to get it. in the same way that like you could still buy an orange copy of Orange Box on eBay today and still get a lot of versions of Portal right but uh you don't need to <laughs> i don't it's it's on the it's on your goddamn computer if you like video games and you have a steam account it is i almost fucking guarantee you that you have portal 
I don't know. It is, it's currently a dollar right now. There's no end date for the sale, so I don't know if it's just stuck like that at 90% off. So we're at, it comes with your Xbox level of availability at that point. If you have a Steam account and do not own Portal, email me at selectpodstart at gmail.com because I want your story. I want to know. I, want, I really want to know. I gen- There's got to be one person out there that has a Steam account and has never played a Valve game on there. And that person mystifies me. How? I don't even want to shame you. I just want to know what happened. Like, it's not like it's not that. It sounds hard yeah. to do it like that. Your computer is almost fucking guaranteed to run it. I, d- I don't see how this could happen. Continuing forward here, you can still buy the game digitally on Steam. A dollar, man. A dollar. I, I would say even if you do have a system that it can't run on, Purchase it for when you get one that does, because a dollar is nothing. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. I'm not going to look and I'm not going to pocket watch, but I, I'm just curious. No, no. But yeah. like, if you if you are just like, I don't care, like, about giving up a dollar, mm-hmm. then yeah. And you want to play this eventually? Then yeah, wait for that machine and it'll come for it. But have it waiting there for you when it's when it's, well, it's still cheap, you know? Yeah, if you're actively buying video games and you have a computer and you don't have Portal, then I'm going to be like, fucking give them a dollar, man. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, you can still buy the game digitally on Steam. Uh, it's also on the Switch, also digital only. No physical release is planned as of the time of this recording. It's more readily available than most games. I can see the ways it can do better, though, particularly with how it's just completely missing from the PlayStation ecosystem. There isn't a physical version readily available to Which buy. Which is odd because Portal 2 was very heavily advertised with the PS3. It was, but now like now it's not on the PlayStation 4 or 5 at all. So it's just it's missing now. It's more readily available than most games. Uh so it's not an ARG. It's very very far away from an ARG, but I'm not going to give it the A either. But it's great that this game is still available because it is incredible and it means a great deal to a lot of people. Portal was the breakout star of the Orange Box, getting critical acclaim at the time. It won multiple Game of the Year awards from outlets including One Up, Joystick, Good Game, Shack News, the AV Club, and the 2008 Game Developer Choice Awards. Those are a lot of sites that are either dead or dying. Jesus fucking Christ. Eurogamer ranked Portal first in its top 50 games of 2007 list, and GamesRadar named it the best game of all time. The game continues to be loved today. As a standalone title, the PC and Xbox version currently holds a 90 out of 100 on the review aggregation website Metacritic. But we're not here to reduce the legacy of Portal to accolades, and statistics we're here to talk about what it actually means to play this game and what it means to somebody who actually played it so let's get back to it emily there you are do you miss getting kicked in the face at warp tour did you shatter your glasses in a mosh pit in 2007 did you wear more studded belts than a final fantasy character then we have the show for you we are So Emo I Fell Apart, a podcast about third wave email, late night live journal updates, burnt hair, and everything in between. Join us every second Saturday as we examine major moments in the history of emo and keep you updated on current events. Because it was never a phase. Are you still there? What do you love about this game and what does it do that more games should do? I think a lot of it is it takes its level of uh interactivity and it does not take it for granted it feels like it is embracing so much of the gaming medium as a construct for not only storytelling but i think that's a big part because i think a lot of games try to chase cinematic storytelling and i think the subtlety of this 
reminds me a lot of a lot of movies I love that are more visual and maybe suffer in some ways to some people. But if you're really into that style, you can really embrace so much more of it. You know, it, it may not be as understandable to everyone, but the people who love the medium and embrace it, they will get so much out of a subtle portrayal like this. And I think that's what makes it special, along with the way it's able to take its gaming format and play with it in the same way because you are a test subject in the game. GLaDOS is messing with you using the components that affect you as a player. It plays on your expectations and how you play. The Companion Cube is a great example because it specifically plays on your expectation that they keep saying. The Enrichment Center reminds you that the Weighted Companion Cube cannot speak. Do not trust it. In the event that the Weighted Companion Cube does speak, the Enrichment Center urges you to disregard its advice. That it makes you think, GLaDOS is lying to me. This cube must have something important. There must be something important there. Only to have it find out that GLaDOS was only messing with you to make you feel worse. And there's something very interesting about ha using that gameplay feature of putting those context clues around you to make you feel a certain way, only to betray you. That feels very seasoned in a way. This feels... In a way, after Half-Life 1 and Half-Life 2, this feels like Valve really showing just how much they've grown in the medium to recognize what everything can mean to the player. Mm. You're not just interactivity, but understanding what elements inter impact a person's emotional state. And I think there's something very interesting to that. The sarcasm, dark humor of GLaDOS being funny at first, but slowly becoming more ominous as they as things start getting more dangerous is very intriguing. I remember the first time when I was a kid playing this game, I was terrified when I finished that uh, turret level and all of a sudden out of nowhere Glasgow goes. Well done, Android. The Enrichment Center once again reminds you that Android Hell is a real place where you will be sent at the first sign of defiance. Yeah. And I just remember being like, what that that wasn't what i was expecting i because i was like 13 i genuinely for a second thought my it was like a creepy pasta like my computer was haunted like mm -hmm. it freaked me out but like there there's something like you now i recognize that i'm older that like the joke is they did not expect you to actually complete the turret level and that she just assumed you must be an android if you beat it there's a certain level to that of like realization as things go on and the soundtrack changes that is very interesting. Like as you play through the puzzles, you start realizing like, what is this going to be used for? What is the purpose of it? You start questioning things in ways and you realize that your purpose in the story is not to know. Their purpose is to just help out and be disposed of. And in a regular testing factory, that would be metaphorically disposed of, and it becomes much more literal here. I think there's a big metaphorical strength in GLaDOS being this representative of we need to complete the task at all costs and how that embodies so much of the capitalist mindset and things like that. That really makes it intriguing when you see it, you know, how the facility has been destroyed by her and 
how everyone has basically evacuated and died as a result the, of the idea of what this system of we must complete everything on time to develop and as well as it can be, we must learn as much information at whatever cost, how, you know, devastating that is. And of course, that plays into Half-Life's themes as well. I, I'd argue that Half-Life focuses more on the idea of getting involved in something you don't understand, while Portal is more the idea of completely ignoring the morality of anything around you. And I think that's a very interesting component to it that I've always loved. Right. Yeah. No, there's definitely a lot to just GLaDOS alone. Like that is the game's secret weapon is it's a good game to play. It, it has tremendous gameplay, but like and Ellen McLean's performance has her as well. She is wild. Like that is basically her main role in like everything. Like she has always been like she's had other voice roles, but GLaDOS is the main role that she keeps getting parts for and stuff like that. Yeah, no, like. GLaDOS is the main thing. Uh, like, she does the announcer for Team Fortress 2. Alert. Our control point is being captured. And um, does, like, some s- smaller roles in other Valve projects. She, she like, got the role for uh, the AI for the robot in uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah. Yeah, as, as doing as, the GLaDOS voice, which is... As cool. Del Toro is a huge fan of Portal. Yeah. Two pilots engaged in neural bridge. Ready to activate the Jaeger in three, two, one. Uh, which I'm sure there's something in there as well about the fact that there has been they've been trying to make a portal movie for like ten years and it just has not happened. And I hope JJ. it never does. I hope it never does, yeah. especially if there's a JJ Abrams around it. Well, also I remember thinking about that as a kid when I was, you know, wanting to was first discovering I wanted to be a filmmaker and being like, maybe I want to make that. And then I thought about it and I went, I don't think there's anything that gets improved about this about the series by putting it into film. Its beauty is as an interactive, like it's an interactive game. Like your relationship, everybody's enjoyment of this is like because you are playing the game. It is best experienced as an interactive experience. And by adapting that into a passive visual medium, you're losing uh, the biggest strength of this particular property, if I want to put it in the most like cynical like uh, terms. Yeah. And I think that it is extremely special as a result of that. As I said, like it understands so much about interacting with the player and how the player explores and giving that freedom to the player and still being effective through a sort of not having to railroad them, but giving them just enough context clues. They still always go to the place you want them to go because of how, how much they're paying attention and how much they're, paying attention to the system specifically in a puzzle game like it manages to make you pay attention to all the little details and i think that's one of the big strengths of video games is finding the interactivity level of the of the person and making them feel like they are really a part of it uh we mentioned bioshock earlier that's one of my favorite strengths of bioshock is not only the environment but how you feel like you become a part of the world while playing it yeah with um with portal right we have like you're talking about environmental storytelling and you're also talking about like making sure like having like awareness of your surroundings and those things are like in tandem with one another where like you're going to beat this game more quickly if you have an understanding of spatial awareness and that's a great teaching tool that it like distributes that information with like 
things that draw your attention on like a lore level where it's like, hey, look at this weird like little like you talked about, like the Ratman cave earlier, like that is something that like you are rewarded as a player for seeking out because you have environmental awareness. And the reward of that is environmental storytelling. Uh, what this game is always trying to teach you to solve these puzzles quickly is to just take the area in. What is around you? What are the resources available to you? You solve this puzzle based on like knowing the relative location of everything to where you're standing. That's why the game is great at all of these things, the visual storytelling and the environmental awareness of everything is because like all of these things are in service of one another. It's like this weird like circular feedback of reward and reward and reward. You learn more about the game both on a on an interactive level and on a narrative level just by looking, just by watching. And there's no timer either. Like there's yeah. no punishment for taking your time and advancing through everything and feeling it strongly. And I think that's one of the best aspects of it is it really wants you to take your time to understand every specific bit mm -hmm. of the world that you're interacting with. Yeah. And yeah, this game is just a great teaching tool for the language of video games. Uh, this is the game I personally credit with getting me into first person video games. And it wasn't because of like any like Same barrier here. besides taste. Like for me, it was just because like I didn't like the idea of not being able to see my character model. It's weird. I found it impersonal, even though the intention is to be immersive. Right. But I got a lot more respect for first-person video games by playing a first-person video game that wasn't strictly about violence or war or had the aesthetics of just like military shooter which was very in the zeitgeist around the time that this game had come out so i just like had a perception of it and this game shattered that perception of it and like a whole new world opened up for me as a result but in general speaking generally here i just think it's a great game to give to anybody who's new to gaming yeah, it's a good video game to be somebody's first FPS because you are in controlled test spaces to the point that you made earlier. There's no time like that. There's no like time pressure It gives you the space to just think for a second and to figure something out without like something constantly trying to kill you. Yes, there are turrets that will shoot at you, but there's always a space for you to go where it can't hurt the you. The reset is relatively quick as well. Yeah. And the, like, yeah, yeah. The reset's very quick, too. It gives you time to be acutely aware of your surroundings. You need to find what you can do, experiment, and determine the solution based on your understanding of the physics and your surroundings. And since there's no external pressure being put on you to make you make snap decisions, you can really just like get comfortable with the idea of navigating 3D spaces, playing an FPS, just solving puzzles in a video game and interactive environment. This game gives you so many tools to not just learn to play one type of video game, but it's just a great intro to all kind of video games, at least from what it's I can see. It's an perceive. intro that doesn't feel dated when you go back to it either. Is there are some things that, you you know, you can start off as an earlier thing that feel basic when you go back to them. Mm -hmm. This one, I feel like, always feels like you're, you come back in and you're overwhelmed with just how much joy there is. We... I mean, just I say that despite it being a very dark game in a lot of aspects, but like how much passion there is in every square inch of it that you it doesn't feel like it's just like as simple as it can be for understanding so many of these tools. It never feels like it. It always feels so 
wide and opportunistic in how you can understand everything around you. Right. Like a game where you are in sterile test chambers trying to solve puzzles runs the extreme risk of feeling like a homework assignment, right? Like it's all puzzle. There's no combat. Like there is avoiding death, but there is nothing to empower you to cause harm with the portal gun. Like the boss fight at the end, technically, when you are redirecting missiles being shot at you with portals can constitute that, I guess. But you are never given anything more than the portal gun as like an item in this game. I'd argue that there's something to we mentioned earlier, like how it doesn't feel like it looks dated in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think there's a certain aspect of the fact that it is completely without other humans. Not only is there like an element of. You know, you do not have to interact violently to another human there, but it also and also the aspect, the obvious aspect of it creates this ominous, dark atmosphere of where you're wondering where everyone has gone. Yeah. And why you're only being monitored by GLaDOS. Mm -hmm. But it also is an opportunistic thing because character models of humans are the first thing to age more directly because we will always focus on making the face more realistic. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the uncanny value of anything. You go and watch an old Pixar movie, and the thing that immediately dates it is, like, the appearance of the characters that are human. You could just say anyway. Toy Story. Toy Story is the most obvious one. Yeah, Toy Story, but, like, basically everything pre-Incredibles looks, like, very unsettling. Andy looked human. like a fucking... Mm -hmm. dunked in the fucking whatever ooze the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out of. Yeah, but, uh, like, they... They're horrifying. You don't you don't want to look at them. But yeah, no, the minimalism is certainly in service of that. And it helps that the game cultivates that aesthetic with the kind of Tim Apple ass fucking uh, aperture science labs where everything is supposed to be like sterile and white, which lends itself to that atmosphere of unsettled, like unsettling. And once you like, break through it, you realize it's rusted over and has been yeah. left behind. No, the elevators are dirty. The padding in the elevators is filthy. Test chambers are flooded like that water is not supposed to be there. Like, this is a filthy, unkept place. Like, it was meant to look like a sterile apple bar, but it isn't because time has rotted it and something has clearly happened here to make it in a state of disarray. But it takes you a while for you to really internalize that. And the isolation really just as you keep looking around, observing literally anything, looking for any kind of signs of life makes you more acutely aware of that. And since GLaDOS is the only thing speaking to you, it, it adds that isolation. That and um, the, the, the minimalism of everything really like keeps this game focused and allows you to um, really latch on to what the game is trying to do. Like the reason that this game is so popular is because like it is so short and so direct and like everything that is there is kind of laid out for you on that first playthrough. It never feels like you're getting an incomplete experience either. As I mentioned yeah. earlier, like they joke, I like as I like to say, like is I wish there were more eight-hour games that felt good at eight hours. We joke about games that feel that end up be the the biggest one I think of is when the Order eighteen eighty six came out and everyone was talking about how you could beat it in six hours. And I remember thinking that's not a bad thing if you don't notice how short it is. Like if you right. play it and you go. Oh, that was six hours. It felt so complete. And Portal is one of those games where you play it for two hours. It doesn't take too long. Mm -hmm. But 
feel like you got the full experience there and it feels special in that way. Right. Like this is a game that you can beat in two to four hours, depending on your experience level with video games and your experience level with this particular game. My most recent playthrough was uh, just under two hours. I think it was like an hour and 40 minutes. And that was me like remembering the game like on a muscle memory sense, but having not actually played it in a few years. It's never going to be a long game, no matter how you play it. But it is perfectly paced in the sense where it's like it escalates properly. You learn the basics of how the game controls. It introduces the portals. It gives you one portal that you can use while you have to work with the second. Then you get access to both portals. And then the test chambers get bigger and more robust and more complex. So like it all builds organically until it gets to the climax where you have to use the skills that you learned to not just solve the tests but escape the facility. So it all builds, and that's pacing in service of short gameplay. Never feels like you need it more afterwards either. You, you don't mind returning to it, but it doesn't feel like they needed to add three more chambers for it to feel truly intense. Like it, it, it is the full experience of itself in a way. Right. And I also think that replaying it is part of the fun of it, is realizing you can go much quicker remember i think there's something fun of returning and remembering how to finish a uh, a puzzle very quickly one of my favorite things that i discovered this time that i've never had happen to me was i was playing the final boss and she does the thing of where one of the intimidating speeches where she goes speaking of curiosity you're curious about what happens after you die right guess what i know and I killed one of the cores as she said that. She goes, well, I was going to tell you, but I'm not now because you killed one of my cores. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so I've never encountered that before. But it's like a certain thing where there's a certain like feeling to discover it, doing something a little bit quicker that at the same time, like makes it still replayable. Mm hmm. Yeah. I was saying earlier, like GLaDOS is this game's secret weapon because, again, the game would be fun on its own but what really takes it to the next level by the devs own admission is the game's writing like if there is going to be only one voice talking to you for the entire game it better be a fucking memorable character and uh you know ella mclean is like wonderful as glados and it's never a performance that feels quippy it feels like you've genuinely reached the edge of like so uh, of this ai sanity right and it's one of those things where like it is very funny but the other thing is like you're not really noting like if you're playing this game blind for the first time, which, uh, you know, God bless you if you're able to play this game blind after the game immediately came out, because like, you know, you talked about the cake is a lie. The game being so short, there isn't so much that you can talk about without spoiling it. Uh, but like, you know, is this AI malicious or is this AI failing? Because like the first like clue that something isn't just straightforward is like, hey, saw these tests is the fact that like a glitch happens in um, the very first like room where you're woken up. For your own safety and the safety of others, please refrain from... Por favor, por donde muchas gracias. And then like when GLaDOS says something weird, it's like, is this sinister? Is this like psychological or is it just glitching? And like answers reveal themselves as you progress through the game where it's just kind of like a, it is a malicious AI, but it is like working through the lens of, like you said, like 
the grind set of capitalism in pursuit of like service of the the corporation that glados tate yeah it is just like constantly um use things through the realm of the testing what it was like programmed for and as you destroy more and more of its personality cores like the things that um hold certain aspects of it back are being destroyed and making it more dangerous and more unwieldy like that kind of like clues you into like what the deal is with this thing one of the things you take away from it is like empathy and that's when like it stops going from like the monotone computery voice to the sultry seductive voice it's like it becomes like an actively evil and cruel angry thing you are kidding me did you just stuff that aperture science thing we don't know what it does into an aperture science emergency intelligence incinerator that has got to be the dumbest thing that whoa 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 (laughs) good news I figured out what that thing you just incinerated did. It was a morality core they installed after I flooded the enrichment center with a deadly neurotoxin to make me stop flooding the enrichment center with a deadly neurotoxin. And then like when you destroy intelligence, it stops like trying to be uh, so like intellectually superior it. or clever. Like, yeah, like clever. Yeah, yeah like as you said. I, I will say this this playthrough was the first time I noticed the line. Uh, you think you're doing some damage? Two plus two is... Ten. In base four, I'm fine. Yeah, no, like when like you destroy its um in, in like in intellectual like core, it will just like just shoot petty insults at you. They're saying like nobody likes you and you, you're, you're just going to die because nobody loves you kind of stuff. Like I invited your best friend, the companion cube. Of course, he couldn't come because you murdered him. All your other friends couldn't come either because you don't have any other friends because of how unlikable you are. It says so right here in your personnel file. Unlikable. Liked by no one. A bitter, unlikable loner whose passing shall not be mourned, shall not be mourned. That's exactly what it says. Very formal, very official. It also says you were adopted. So that's funny too. Like everything like has like a a justification for it in an interactive sense. Like everything is a reaction to your actions. And that just makes for, you know, a great video game. But yeah, um, speaking to the games like excellent writing i got this um shack news article that i mentioned earlier the gdc 08 portal creators on writing multiplayer government interrogation techniques uh the developers of the game talk about their development process and one note is uh quote don't tell anybody but some of portal's best dialogue the stuff about the importance of your weighted companion cube came from writer eric wolpaul's readings of some quote declassified government interrogation thing this is uh, eric wolpaul speaking now not the article writer Isolation leads subjects to begin to attach to inanimate objects, uh, end quote. So when Kemp Swift and the rest of the small portal team at Valve, which was never larger than 10 people, were trying to make players drag uh, what Kemp Swift described as this stupid thing all over a map, Wolpole had an idea. His solution was to have a piece of dialogue that implied the box was the player's only friend in the world. After that, no one forgets the box, Swift noted. When all else fails, Great dialogue was a great tool to give hints to players. And that's when Kim Swift also adds, on its own, the gameplay would be all right. Honestly, a little on the dry side. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the video game humor in a second. Like the, you know, video game humor is notoriously bad, in, especially in early video games. But like, this wasn't the first funny video game ever. But this is definitely a game that definitely refined the humor to make it more hits than 
not hits, in my opinion. And I like the fact that it, like, he recognized the idea of, like, dialogue was an important key for it, because I've always been pissed off at the attitude I see from some gamers where they hold that, uh, that quote from, I forget who it is, but one of the main Doom developers where he said, uh, story in a game is like story in a porn. It's just there because you need it for a purpose, but it's not really that important. I disagree with that concept very deeply, and I think Portal's a great example of how it can really enhance a piece of gaming media while also not compromising it as well as an interactive medium. It never seems to hold your hand through it, but it always accentuates the moment. Right, but like, uh, you know, talking about like the the companion cube, like in the early development stages of this game, uh, they didn't have anything that made it any distinct from a regular cube, and when you have to take the companion cube to like one of the bigger levels of the game and it's a something that you have to lug with you throughout the entire testing chamber giving just stamping a heart onto it and saying this this box is your friend and you haven't interacted with anybody else in the entire game is just a brilliant way for you to not resent that this box has to be carried around this entire testing chamber you know what makes humans different from other animals feet no no, no. come on bears have feet we're the only species on Earth that observes Shark Week. Sharks don't even observe Shark Week, but we do. For the same reason, I can pick up this pencil, tell you its name is Steve, and go like this. Oh. And part of you dies just a little bit on the inside because people can connect with anything. We can sympathize with a pencil, we can forgive a shark, and we can give Ben Affleck an Academy Award for screenwriting. Big mistake. Um, it's that simple to give attachment to something. And it does make the companion cube a, a very popular icon when people talk about this game. There's merchandise of the companion cube. The companion cube is only in one map in the entire game. But since like they did just one small little thing to make it distinct from all the other like generic boxes that you interact with, suddenly it becomes important. And then people start to discuss the lore implications of it because like GLaDOS is saying like, you know, this is your only friend, this, that, and the other. The Enrichment Center reminds you that the weighted companion cube will never threaten to stab you and, in fact, cannot speak. And then, like, you start, like, spinning the wheels in your head, speculating, like, well, is the companion cube alive in some way? The turrets will scream out in agony when, they, when they're knocked over or disintegrated. And, like, the radio, if you manage to get a radio and take it all the way to the end of a level and it disintegrates, it screams... So it's not impossible for the companion cube to possibly have feelings. And then you start to feel insane like the Gladys is trying to make you feel because like it may just be a fucking cube. Oh, also, there's a huge basis of the Ratman character I know in the South World Ever is, is uh, ethos is in his comic is like that he gets attached to the companion cube and everything like that. And it being the only thing left as he tries to escape. Mm hmm. I think there is a very interesting psychological thing to it. And the same thing when you burn the cube. she I believe she always does. I'm not sure if it was just in my playthrough where I knew I had to do it to pass through, so I just did it quickly. You euthanized your faithful companion cube more quickly than any test subject on record. Congratulations. Yeah. No, yeah. Like, it's another way of, like... It's guilting you for it. Yeah. Yeah. Another great thing about the Gladys performance, because, like, this is the only person talking to you throughout the game, it becomes, like, this really familiar concept of abuse where somebody who knows more than you just gets to, like, 
manipulate you and your emotions and just like belittle you in some way. You could call it like a paternalistic relationship. It can be like a mother to their child, a father, a step parent or whatever, some form of authority figure, a teacher, a headmaster, a principal, whatever you want to project onto that. But it is just a very familiar idea of like somebody who knows more and is in a in an advantageous position belittling you because like you know they tell you something you believe it and then they make you feel like a fool for it it's it's smart it like it's good it's funny but it is also just like hurtful and it does come hit a real emotional place for you if you are vulnerable to those you know if you're vulnerable or familiar with that dynamic you're not smart you're not a scientist you're not a doctor you're not even a full-time employee where did your life go so wrong so those are things about the game that you know i really love this game is brilliant at environmental storytelling. It's really good at writing. It's very good at realizing things on a gameplay level. Do you feel like there is anything that this game could have done better? I really can't think of anything. I really, I feel like it always hits the right spot for me. And that's why it's my favorite game of all time is it always seems to communicate what it wants to communicate perfectly well. I always feel like I get the satisfaction out of it. And it never feels like it is ever kneecapping itself, trying to tell these stories as well. It always feels like it is fully and authentically itself, and that you as the player are never sacrificing any parts of yourself to enjoy with it. It always feels like you are a part of it, and it accepts you. And it's so dense and easy to understand, but difficult to really completely master in your brain that it ends up being extremely satisfying to pull up. So I, I would argue, yes, it's it's one of my, it, it might be a perfect game to me. All right. And that you're perfectly entitled to that opinion because like it is a game that does very little wrong by nature of it being such a lean experience. Like everything is in service of like minimalism where it's like the aesthetics are like trying to like convey that this is like one of those like sleek minimalists, uh, you know, Apple bar, like we mentioned earlier things, which helps with the, you know, aging of the graphics. So that's something that like a consideration that they made in 2007 to keep this game from being dated long term. That's super smart of it. It's difficult to scrutinize Portal because it is so lean and purposeful. It holds up tremendously. Uh, you look at other games from 2007 and a lot of it is dated. That first Uncharted game, no good. I can tell you that. Oh, I've never really been able to get into Uncharted because I've only played one and two. And I'm just like, it feels weird to go back to it after playing Last of Us and being like, this cover shooting doesn't feel that good for a game that's about cover shooting. One is just like, they're not confident enough in the idea of like making this like an exploration, like platforming thing. So they really lean heavily on the cover shooting and the cover shooting is not the best part of the Uncharted games. It's really just like the interpersonal dynamics like two is like generally considered the best or four one of the best because of like how heavily they're able to like lean on like the spectacle and the the stuff that isn't the shooting but um portal like again being so lean with it is really really good at not being a game that you can really identify many flaws in if i had to really like put a microscope onto this i would say that since it is a puzzle game it's not the kind of thing that you can, for at least for me, like you beat it and then it's like, all right, I'm going to replay this like 10 more times over the next couple of days because like you're going to know the solutions. If you want to be 
if you consciously take it as like a how quickly can I beat it thing, that's one thing. But this is the kind of game that you have to like stop playing for a while and then come back to it so the later puzzles don't feel as familiar to you. And I guess like another thing would be, if again, we're really scrutinizing it since those early test chambers before you get both portal guns, before you get both portals are like part of the ramp up from the beginning of the game to the part where you are, you know, able to use everything the game has to offer you. That can feel like a little, you feel a little impatient on some like later play on later playthroughs because you're like, okay, yeah, I know how to play the game. Can I, can I get to the portal gun now? But it's not bad. I personally had the experience of like when that happened at the game, I found a new satisfaction in getting there as quickly as possible. Sure. Yeah. That's 100% fair. And yeah, as you mentioned, like definitely age better than some game. I have a list of two that some videos is that, and as I as we mentioned, like great year for gaming overall, like any year with Bioshock, Halo 3, Portal, Call of Duty 4, Mass Effect 1, like all Super Mario Galaxy, Team Fortress 2, God mm-hmm. of War 2. Like there's so many good games that year. There still are some weird ones. Am I going to say that it aged worse than Kane and Lynch <laughs> or, you know, like. The first Assassin's Creed game, like that's oh. always been like seen as like more of a proof of concept, even like when the early games were coming out. But I think now it's that just is like, also another example of a game that is a fucking pain to complete from what I understand. It is like a fetch quest and a half of just collectibles everywhere. But it makes you all appreciative of a two hour experience that never overstays its welcome yeah and still feels just as full it has not aged as bad as games like the ones we're mentioning right now where it's like yeah if the game is too sprawling to a point where it's a problem that of course is an issue but it never feels like it here and i think there's thing special about that no i agree um <laughs> this is a thing where we're supposed to identify flaws in Portal, and we just ended up dunking on a bunch of other games from 2007. Very classy of us, but also well, like well, you, 100% you said, deserved. Like compared to other, yeah, yeah, compared to other games of the period of age. Well, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, like I played Mass Effect One and loved it recently, but I played the Legendary Edition because they had to update it because the old Mako was broken. Yeah, and even then the Mako sections still aren't good. I wouldn't like if you enjoy yeah. them, I won't like dunk on you, but those are far and away that's the a worst great part. game <laughs> from from two thousand seven. Yeah, that's one of the like, better games from we're saying that it and we're saying that this age better, like that that is a sign of quality that we can compare to something that we agree is like a high eight out of ten great experience and be like, Yeah, this still holds up better. So we talked about it a little bit. Like you say that you just generally prefer uh, Portal over Portal 2. Do you, what are your more elaborate thoughts on Portal 2, its sequel? I, I think Portal 2 is still obviously an excellent game. I, I think that sometimes that its length makes it so there's occasional bits that feel like you're just sort of waiting for the story to talk to you a little bit more. It, it feels a little less natural with its story than one does but it still always hits you the details with the story with the story of Catherine and, uh i believe it's Catherine, the name of uh cave johnson's secretary carolyn comes glad out carolyn yes it is fascinating the boss fight with weekly at the end of the game is amazing and the new 
momentum tools are very fun. It's a really excellent game. The only reason I think I preferred Portal 1 is just that I think the more compactness makes it so it's easier for it to avoid some of the occasional pitfalls of Portal 2. Portal 2 can feel a bit less dramatic and dark as a result of the fact that it is uh, delivering a much more more characters, more delivery, more jokes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just a thing I prefer slightly. I can't say anything really bad about Portal 2 other than the fact that I just prefer 1. But 2 is still a fantastic experience. And I I can't, I can't be too surprised that more people love it because it is the longer, more detailed version of a lot of these test ideas. Mm-hmm. I just think that as an overall experience, I prefer one. But even then, like, it's an incredibly impressive sequel. For a company that, as much as we joke about them not being able to count to three, like, their twos are always incredible. And it is arguably maybe their maybe their best, maybe better than Half-Life 2. I know that, that that's hard to say. <laughs> it is close. I mean, I think looking at their list because Dota was not an officially released game and neither was uh, Team Fortress, most of their games have a two at the end of it. (laughs) Cards on the table, Portal 1 masterpiece. I do also think Portal 2 is a masterpiece. And really, it just sort of comes down to personal taste. uh, Like, for what people just I I can't disagree with that. Like, I understand, like, why people prefer Portal because Portal was this complete wild card when it came out. It had the polish of a triple A game, like the other games included on the orange box. But in terms of scope and length, it was reminiscent of what we now consider an indie game. Indie games are still really, really new back then. Like Xbox Live Arcade was like less than two years old by the time Portal 2 came out. If I can't, if I, less by the time Portal came out, if I recall correctly, it, it's not an indie game. To to be clear, it was published by Valve, but it had a very small team. It had new talent, and it was a completely new thing with a simple, straightforward presentation. And like there was nothing at the time that you could cleanly compare Portal against. Portal 2, though, is like a Half-Life game. It is a more traditional AAA video game in scope, scale, and presentation. And no, they don't give you a second gun in Portal, but they do have a multiplayer. So you can have up to four portals if you're doing the co-op. Like it's more set piece driven than just like going from puzzle chamber to puzzle chamber so like when you're doing the single player portions of the game these like environments are like in service of like that environmental storytelling but it is a bit more obvious because there are more characters talking to you like you're learn you're hearing pre-recorded messages when you go into the depths you are like dealing with wheatley who is very talky and you are working with glados who is constantly talking to you so there is like everything feels bigger everything is more and more when you are playing portal is good but in terms of like the actual length of getting to the end it really comes down to personal taste if everything that they give you is necessarily the same or better because i do know that people really struggle with like the part where you're in like the old aperture labs because like it does feel more obviously like being guided through set pieces than it does genuinely solving puzzles for a lot of people i think the best way to put it is if portal one is my favorite game of all time portal two is one of my favorite games of all time for sure like it may not be number one but it's in the top 20 somewhere you know like it's it, that that's pretty elite company to be a part of and if someone told me they prefer it i'd be like you know what i don't blame you i sometimes feel like i'm the odd one out that i prefer portal one because so many more people prefer it for its game 
World 2 for its gameplay. But it's hard for me to argue against them because, yeah, I can totally understand because they're both excellent. And if there's a takeaway you all should take from this podcast, it should be play Portal 1 mm. and Portal 2. Right. That's really all we're saying. They're both masterpieces. Like people who like get really into heated debates about whether Portal or Portal 2 is better is really just like you're fighting over the granular at a certain point. It, they're both very it's refined the joke of, uh, It's the joke of... Uh, Oh, my cake's not as good as the other person. When we really should just be looking and going, oh shit, there's two cakes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if you, if you, yeah, like that old webcomic. Yeah, like if that's, that's a really good way of looking at it in this instance. Yeah. Cake and grief counseling will be available at the conclusion of the test. We've talked about how this game uh, has guided you along your journey with video games since you've played it. What other impact did this game make on you, do you think? I think it made me feel like I was discovering more of what I enjoyed in art because this I got into this before I got into film and it was my first exposure to really like a really famous uh, dramatic work in a way like it, it's comedic, but it's also dramatic in a way. It made me realize that I like stories that have these complexities in them that have a lot more commentary that use their medium to their limit. And it started my journey to the thing I now want to do in a way, like maybe not directly, but indirectly, like I might have learned a little bit of what I love about art in it. And that's I think that's an achievement in a way is that this this piece of art was able to help me fall in love, not just with its medium, but with art in general. Yeah, that's that's very that's a very nice way of putting it. This is a game that made me love first person shooters. This is a game that made me appreciate PC gaming. It really got me into a whole ecosystem of not just the Valve published games, but games that are PC experiences um, in the years since. So this is also a game that altered the trajectory of how I play video games and my approach to video games. This is a big game for me. And Portal is absolutely a masterpiece. I do consider it a, a, a tremendous part of like the canon of video games. And I am super grateful to have played it. Full marks. It is, it is a masterpiece. Agreed. Agreed. Those, those are all the notes I have on Portal. Do you have anything else that you want to uh, mention before we move on? We've been talking a lot. I think I got most of it out. Oh, wait. I do have one thing, actually. Okay. If people remember, uh, Alan McLean was a big uh, endorser of a queer uh, gaming convention in San Francisco called Gamer X. She was one of the funders of the Kickstarter. She, I believe, goes there every, every went there every year. There's a certain story about that event that I'd like to tell. I've never been to the event, but my English teacher in high school did. My English teacher in high school is a gay man who really nurtured a lot of my creativity and helped me feel comfortable as I was coming. I I never told him about being trans, but I, I he was one of the people that helped me. Like I got into the GSA as a result of him, and it helped me feel more comfortable in a lot of ways. And he was someone who loved films. One year, he mentioned that he loved Lars von Trier and uh, his Uva, and I mentioned that I'd been trying to watch Dance in the Dark. He said that was his favorite film, and so he lent me the DVD to just keep with me. Unfortunately, it did not work. The DVD did not work. So the next day, uh, despite it being the last day of school and I didn't have to go, I still came back for at the end 
at noon and just handed it to him and was like, I'm sorry, it doesn't work on my laptop. Uh, you, you should have back the DVD for your own sentimental value because <laughs> <laughs> it is your favorite movie. But it was something that showed like the appreciation that I really value. Anyway, the portal relation is that portal was his favorite video game as well. And at a certain at the Gamer X convention in 2013, he, along with Ellen McLean, proposed to his husband there using a modified version of Still Alive. That's lovely. That's re- that's very, very sweet. The clip is online. It has about 25K views, and it's very adorable, especially, you know, hearing the first line of, you are a triumph. It's like, aww. <laughs> <laughs> and seeing my English teacher come out in <laughs> an all-orange portal costume with a portal gun that used to hang over the classroom. Uh, very sweet. That is. Thank, yeah. thank you for sharing that story. I did make sure that uh, there was no identifying details in it as well. Yeah, you only told people that there's a video <laughs> online and they, they can watch it. <laughs> I'm... Do not look up where I went to high school. Okay. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, it, that, that's a very lovely story. I'm glad that you uh, told it. Absolutely. At the end of every episode, uh, I like for the guest and I to both give recommendations based off of the game that we discussed. Emily, are there any other recommendations that you have for people who like Portal? It doesn't strictly have to be a video game. It can be any kind of media. I think there's uh, one or two I could make. One of the ones I think is one I'd like to reference is uh, it's not exactly the same, but if we're going to be talking about Rogue AI, I have to talk about a lot of people listening to this are probably film people and they might already know about this one but 2001 a space odyssey is my second favorite film ever and i argue that it might be the most perfect movie ever made and if you want the original rogue ai i think there is no no better version of it and if you want the idea of exploring the idea of morality and human consciousness and how greed and violence can take over as well in the same way as aperture science's corporate attitude did I think that is a uh, very quality title to have in that sort of way. I feel like this is an obvious one that most people who are into Portal would have already played, but the Stanley Parable is probably the closest I can think of to a to a game that has the same amount of freedom and it's in, like embraces the idea of interactivity as its main driving force while also still having a dash of dark humor and drama inside it. And I think that is the most, the the game that is probably the most comparable to Portal is the Stanley Parable. All right. Any other uh, recommendations? I guess Super Hot kind of works as one, if only in the sense that I think that the way you play Super Hot is almost like a puzzle mm-hmm. in a way. It is. And has a very similar feeling of puzzling through with a first person's perspective yeah and i think when you view it through that there's a sort of influence there that is very fun to experience no i agree because it is one of the recommendations i have on my list here <laughs> so I, I i do agree with you on that end 
yeah, if you love this game for its atmosphere and its tone and for the sort of sort of a puzzly approach, uh, Super Hot is a great uh, recommendation. If you love this game for its story and lore implications, uh, you can supplement that by playing the Half-Life series, which is part of the same continuity. And the Gravity Gun is a big fixture of Half-Life 2, which is also an incredible weapon that interacts with the, the physical world around you. So it is a great companion to Portal. If you love this game and how it deploys visual storytelling in a first-person perspective, I would highly recommend Metroid Prime. I did an episode on Metroid Prime with Mark Normandon, uh, so check that out if you haven't already. Uh, but it is an incredible game that also uses environmental storytelling. Definitely check that out if you haven't. As for a movie, uh, Moon, directed by Duncan Jones, it stars Sam Rockwell as someone who has spent three years on a mining operation on the far side of the moon with no one but his robot companion. It is a great examination on isolation and capitalism and how the latter perpetuates the former. Uh, check it out. It also has Benedict Wong and Matt Berry in it. Love me some Matt Berry. So uh, watch yeah. Moon if you haven't. Those are all the recommendations I have for today. Emily, did you want to stick around while I read some reader comments? Absolutely. All right. I have some listener comments. I asked some people on our Twitter at SelectPodStart to give me some thoughts on Portal. And here are a few that stood out to me. Uh, at Ham Sandcastle, who was my guest on the Earthbound episode, uh, said, The latest entry to my father and son defeat together Pantheon. The possibilities of a portal gun continue to fascinate my seven-year-old and myself. The cake twist in the song hold up and are as funny to a zoomer, and evil AI is more prescient than ever. This is a triumph. I can totally understand that reaction, yeah. I feel like that's the interesting thing is the cake is a lie only became tired through other people. It was never through the game. Yeah. I mean, like I understand people like sort of becoming sick of something because of fandom. Right. But I can at least have like the try and take the optimist approach of like, this is a game that was so popular that it broke the containment of its internal community and hit the mainstream in a big way. I remember, I remember people making like special effects videos of portal guns and, Oh, yeah. That that whole like era of YouTube and the Internet community, like obviously like the cake is a lie became too big for its own good. Like there's that infamous web comic about finding oh, yeah. fellow nerds, finding, <laughs> finding fellow nerds at a party uh, and talking about cake and the cake being lie. I don't. It is obviously a game that uh, resulted in a lot of annoying behavior online, but I do still see it as a net good. And I, I think there is something to be said about like you mentioned, like how the portal like idea of the portal gun and its concept really enraptured a lot of special effects people on youtube and stuff like that it's just it's interesting to me for me to remember like how the uh a short film made based on portal the portal no escape short film by dan trachtenberg ended up leading to the director getting 10 cloverfield lane oh yeah you're right pray i'm not a big fan of 10 cloverfield lane but <laughs> i it's interesting to see like a work like Fan works getting to a point where not only for this project that was seen as a big, probably a big risk internally in a way, becoming so big that, you know, J.J. Abrams is finding a guy making a fan film on YouTube and going, I want that guy to make the next Cloverfield is wild. The best Cloverfield. So, I mean, hey, listen, I like 10 Cloverfield Lane and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, you're always welcome on the show. I don't know if you play video games, but <laughs> let's let's talk about it. 
I, like, I'm not going to say anything bad about Mary Elizabeth Winston. Yeah. <laughs> Look. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, John Goodman also in fantastic in that movie. So, hey, oh, yeah. yeah, he's he's called Goodman for a reason. Anyway, more listener comments at Pasta Slut. Uh, I've played Portal from. Great name. Yes. <laughs> He wrote, I've played Portal from start to finish at least five times. The Orange Box is one of the first GameStop purchases I made with my own money, parentheses, allowance, in parentheses. It'll always hold an extra special spot for me. Yeah, no, thank you for writing in. At Paladin Pals, oddly enough, because it's about moving and keeping track of 3D objects in space, it's one of the best games out there for teaching spatial awareness. I'm autistic, and my doc recommended it for that purpose as I learn how to drive. The more you know. So thank you. I, I was gonna say, like, yeah, they that I've seen several things where they've mentioned where, yeah, it's uh, been used for uh, teaching physics in a lot of classrooms as well. Yeah, I remember um, there was a period of time, like early in the school year, at like September 2011, where Steam made it free for a couple of weeks, so people could uh, purchase it and use it in classroom settings and for teaching purposes. So I think that that is. Very good. And I'm glad that it is being used for uh, helping people with motor function and spatial awareness. I think that's really very cool. Absolutely. I I appreciate that we're embracing more artistic lenses that could be used for more in life. Because I, I always argued artists is meant to reflect humanity. And if we can help humanity through art, that is something that is very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's like we're reflecting back on ourselves with our own kindness in a way. <laughs> of course. I, I want to be generous with humanity and say that art is a reflection of how wonderful we are. And, uh, yeah. you know, not think about the fact that humans also invented the atom bomb. Um, <laughs> anyway. It, it's, it's, the, it's a real, uh, in the way I like to think about it is I know, uh, to use a film analogy, uh, Tarkovsky was not happy with 2001 because he found it too cynical. So he made Solaris. And I'm of the opinion that reality makes is Solaris and 2001 both correct. Humanity can both make the atom bomb and it can also be one of the most empathetic creatures in the world. Right. Emily, it was wonderful to have you on the show. But before I let you go, please promote the hell out of yourself. Thank you. I, I, I was going to say pleasure being on here. I've been having a blast. <laughs> so. My name is Adequate Emily, all one word. If you put a space in there, I will track you down and do uh, bad things to you. I am kidding, uh, for legal reasons. Uh, <laughs> I just say that so people know exactly where to find me. My main thing is my YouTube channel. Currently, I am working on a video on Oppenheimer, which may or may not be out by the time this is out. If it is not, it will be out soon then. Uh, with my most recent videos being two uh, adequate shorts are my movie review series. So that would be what Oppenheimer is part of. It, the last two being Barbie and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And my last video essay with that being my main thing I focus on being the a video on the conformist and fascism uh, and how I adore the 1970 Bernardo Bar Bertolucci film, The Conformist. You can... Also find me on other social media platforms. I will leave the one that has scorned us last as a way of shaming it. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Adequate Emily. Same at there. Same for Blue Sky, where I'm at adequateemily.bsky.social. Uh, you can find me on TikTok as well at Adequate Emily. I haven't made too much content there, but I've been considering using it as a 
uh, way of making more quick content and doing sort of quick video essay like content, but for shorter materials like songs or quick analysis to really share things I, that I like but don't have as much to say on. And I am technically on Twitter. I'm not calling it X. If my account is back, then it is at adequate Emily, all one word. It is currently not back as we are speaking, but it might be by the time we talk about it. And if it is not, I am at Imprisoned Emily <laughs> on Twitter uh, because I thought that name was very funny uh, when I first came up with it. And other than that, um, yeah, you can find me on Farmers Only at Adequate Emily as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, should I say my next video essay as well? Because I've announced that as well. Oh, yeah, go for it. My next video essay is on HD DVDs. It's going to be a funny little video. I'm making it a much more lighthearted comedy one. Because the one after that is going to be, uh, if it is the one I'm planning on making, it is going to be the most intense work I've made so far. And I am excited for that. But also that means I kind of want to make a Scott the Wallace type video that's very light in between. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I really appreciate you uh, being on here talking about Portal. I'm looking forward to all your future projects. Thank you once again, Emily. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Portal or any of the games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment, and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. That's on patreon.com slash Corner. You can find the links to that and the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on moonshotpods.com. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. The show's theme song was composed by Mike Petrie. You can check out the links in the description for their work, as well as Emily's. All right, I think that's it. HL2.exe is not responding. <laughs>